Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday morning, February 3rd, third day of the dumb month. 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. So uh, we had a little communication with Freehold yesterday. Mm-hmm. The weather's not very pleasant in Montana. Yeah, and he seems a bit surprised by the fact that the weather's not... Um, you tried to warn him, Yeah, didn't I you? gave him fair warning. You're going to the most extreme weather in the continental United States. And he gets there, and it's like, wow, it's cold and windy with a big chance of snow. I it's asked Montana, Friol. I, I told him on a text. I, I was, of course, being funny. He was checking in to see how things were going, and I, and I asked him the same. How's it going? I hear the weather's nice there this time of year is what I said. <laughs> and he's like, ha-ha, it was minus 8 this morning. Mm-hmm. Goody. <laughs> Goody. Trying to tell Yeah, him. minus 8. That's, that's not the windshield. That's just the temperature. <laughs> right. I would imagine the wind blowing Gets it to somewhere around 25 or 30. The coldest recorded temperature, of the 10 coldest recorded temperatures in the continental United States, seven are in the state of Montana. (laughs) And it's something to do with the Rocky Mountains and the wind and blah, 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 the jet streams and the, um, you know, the the Western forces and whatnot. But um, I got one word. Goody? (laughs) Goody? I hope the job pays well, Freehold, because you're getting, wonder if he's getting, um, inclement weather pay you know like hazard pay what if it's inclement weather pay in uh in montana i don't know i don't have any idea um i did read an article about wyoming you and i talked a little bit about the article we read about uh, about wyoming nobody in wyoming wears orvis i mean there's this um there's this uh, online shopping they have stores here and there but it's it's largely um it would be called what rev upscale hunting attire I think that's somebody who wants to play outdoorsman. I, I don't know much about him, but that's that's kind of what I. Understand. I mean, it's kind of the um. It would be the um. Those of you who want, ah, let me say this. Ready? Those of us who want to be rugged outdoorsmen, we go to that catalog and we find a flannel shirt that looks like <laughs> Paul Bunyan may have worn it, so right. we buy it. Well, in the article it says only only visitors wear Orvis. The real. People, the people who live in Wyoming and grew up in Wyoming, they're wearing Wrangler and Carhartt and, you know, some of the other, uh, in other words, they kind of chuckle when they see you walking around with your little Lord Fulleroy outfit on <laughs> that you got from the uh, from the Orvis catalog. I want to do something this morning I don't think I've ever done in my life. Uh-oh. I woke up this morning with Clemson on my mind. And I hardly really? ever do that, except during a big losing streak to Clemson. But our, somebody sent me something last night or late yesterday afternoon about Dabo Sweeney's uh, press conference. And I've got a question to the Clemson faithful. And I know some of you are listening. I'm not one, so it doesn't resonate with me like it probably will with you. Why does it seem to me that we're nearing the end of the Dabo Sweeney run? I'm not saying Dabo's ready to retire today. I'm, I'm certainly not. wish he would, but I'm not saying <laughs> he is. Um, but why does something... Why does some of the questions and answers lead me to believe that Dabo's accepting that this has been a magical time in Clemson football history? And I'm not saying Dabo's not as motivated. I'm not saying he's uh, not as committed. I don't know what I'm saying. But I read the article late yesterday afternoon, early in the evening. As a Gamecock fan, you keep up with your opponents. I mean, obviously you do. Sure. And I, and I, and we I'm out yesterday, you read the, the Tiger Net boards Sure, and, and, and stuff. Full, full disclosure, I'm strategizing. I don't hate Clemson. <laughs> I mean, I mean this sincerely. I admitted to one of our listeners and a Clemson fan that I spent most of my life hating Clemson. When I ran for lieutenant governor and had a third of my checks as campaign contributions with a Tiger pole on top, 
I mean, how do you hate that? I mean, it's hard to do that. I mean, I get the rivalry, and I get all amped up as much as anybody ever does. And I was as excited to upset Clemson and Clemson this year as any Gamecock fan you would expect to be. But 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 what Clemson, I, mean, I think Dabo made some very poignant comments yesterday or the day before when he said, you know, we've won three national championships in 127 years, two in the last seven, and that's the problem. And that's the question that kind of gets me. And that's the problem, the, the expectation of Clemson football today. Uh, I don't. I think Clemson's gone to seven consecutive 14 playoffs, if I'm not mistaken, uh, up until last year when they didn't get included. Now, once again, I'm not good on Clemson history because I'm not a Clemson fan, but I did read with a high level of interest the question and answer that Dabo gave, and it was a single question and about a 1,000 or 1,200-word answer. In other words, Dabo was waiting for somebody to ask that question, and he had a, a pretty extensive answer ready. Now, now, as a Gamecock fan, I admitted yesterday, when Beamer signs Harbor, what is the one thing Shane can't do that Dabo can? He can't carry him in the trophy room. I mean, he's got to sell him on a, um, a building of culture, a building of expectation, a building of winning. Dabo can take the five-star kid and, and walk into a room and say, here's what we've done. We're incredibly cr- uh, pl- proud of our accomplishments, recent and past, in the ACC and across the national um, spectrum. But, but when he said it, and that's the problem, <laughs> that, just, that, that reeks of, wow. I mean, we've created some pretty unrealistic expectations. Um, we've been on a magical, mystical run, and people think it lasts forever. I mean, do people really believe that those sorts of runs um, last forever? Saban's run is probably the one that appears to, you know, be a longer shelf life than anybody else's. I mean, what Alabama's done is more unique than even what Clemson has done. But but that single sentence just kind of resonated with me, um, and that's the problem. That there is no problem there, Dabo. I mean, you're you're it's legendary. A, yeah, it's a. I mean, the, a record. the most legendary coach in Clemson history is Danny Ford, right? I mean, I understand Frank Howard, and I, you know, but but Ford was was uber successful, won a national championship in what nineteen eighty one. Yeah, Rogers went to Heisman at eighty. Clemson wins the um, national championship at eighty one. Um, Dabo comes along, kind of a roll of the dice hire, and out of that comes, I guess, the best run in Clemson football history. Includes two national championships in seven years, repeated appearances in a fourteen playoff. That will eventually, after next year, be a twelve-team playoff. So the you know the college football landscape changes, but um, but I, I just wondered if Clemson fans feel that is it angst? I mean, is that the word? Is it um? I mean, it's obvious there's an expectation now that is unrealistic. I don't think with every fan. I mean, I think a lot of fans realize, wow, this has been pretty crazy, but it ain't lasting forever. As a Gamecock fan, I joked around when Tanner. This would have been a, a more minor sport. But remember the period of time Ray Tanner won two baseball championships and played for a third, and I would joke around with my with my Clemson fans. I would joke around and say, we're just going to start including World Series tickets in our season ticket package. You know what I mean? There, there, there's no reason to expect us not to be back in Omaha, not to be one of the last two teams standing. I mean, we've done it three years in a row. Why don't we start – now, I'm doing that sarcastically. Why don't we just start including World Series final game tickets as part of our season <laughs> ticket package? You, you do that knowing that that's silly. That's crazy to believe that's going to continue on and on and on and on because it simply does not. But that one sentence, and that's the problem. Well, and he Just had kinda, to have it, heard, it, heard the chatter. Obviously, they didn't make the playoff this year, and that was— What's wrong with Clemson football? Right. And then all of a sudden— <laughs> Well, you lose to South Carolina. 
I mean, that, that really and truly, you know, losing to Tennessee in the bowl, Tennessee's got good players, good team. South Carolina, we think, fingers crossed, ready, an up-and-comer. You know, we were hoping for <laughs> well, that. Yeah, you had the two things. You lose to your rival that you've been used to winning over and so many consecutive favored years. Over. Yeah, and, and then you don't make the playoffs, and the sky's it's like, falling. what's wrong? Yeah, what's wrong? You know, is this Dabo? And I just I think it's unrealistic to believe that somebody can be um, as locked in. I mean, Dabo's been locked in for a long time. Um, and they've had, a, a once again, a magical run, but nothing is forever. And it seemed to me that interview, that question, that answer was an answer Dabo's been waiting a long time to give to the Clemson faithful and followers. And I don't think it's insulting at all. I mean, I don't think he intended to insult anybody. I read some of the comments. They felt insulted, but I don't think Dabo intentionally tried to insult anybody. I just think he said, look, man, let's appreciate what we've done. Let's try to do it again. But if we don't ever do it again, wow, how many teams do what we've already uh, accomplished? Fans don't want to hear that. What have you done for me lately? I've actually got some Clemson friends that say, it's time. What do you mean it's time? It's time to make a change. Wow, really? Okay. Uh, I don't know many that say that, but a couple do. I will say wow. this. I was informed yesterday that Nick Harbor is the first five-star recruit that South Carolina football has ever landed that didn't live in South Carolina. Genevian Clowney, Marcus Lattimore, uh, a couple of others. I'm talking about Demetrius Summers. But every one of those kids was from South Carolina. So you've kind of got an upper hand and the old cliche, keep the kid at home. You know, you're probably battling Clemson for some of those kids. Um, but other than Lattimore, Clowney, um, Gilmore and Jeffrey were four-star recruits, highly rated players, but nothing like uh, Lattimore, Demetrius Summers, and um and Genevieve That's interesting because, because it takes away the, the home state loyalty factor in the decision well, that it, the player makes. And it makes you a relevant program. Right. I mean, if, if you go somewhere exactly. other than your home state and land a top 10 player in the country, that's that's quite the feather in your cap. Um, yeah, when Jadavion Clowney goes to the University of South Carolina and another team from another part of the country says, well, he, he wanted to stay home. Sure. That's understandable. That, but now it's the it's the opposite. It happens more times than not right. that the kid does decide yeah. to stay home. Um, in the wow. end. I heard a little I scuttle. About that. Well, I heard a little scuttlebutt yesterday about what happened, you know, behind the scenes. There was a um a couple of moments during the day they thought they had him. A couple of moments during the day they thought they didn't have him. A couple of the moments in the day they thought the money from Nike and Oregon had really carried more weight than they anticipated. Uh, if it was all about the money, he's in Oregon. I mean, simply as I mean that that doesn't get any simpler than that. Um, because Phil Knight can tell the kid something South Carolina or Clemson can't. I can turn you into the next Michael Jordan. But I thought it was interesting that the first time in Gamecock football history, a five-star recruit signed who doesn't call South Carolina home. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Roger and Coward. Hello, Roger. Good morning. <laughs> You know, you started off this morning and it got my attention. I, in fact, I was reading the news and then you started off on Clemson. I said, well, let me put my little two cents in because I'm not a no, I'm not, I'm probably not an average Clemson fan. I, you know, I'm, I think I'm a little more realistic than some, but I always said that if, at some point, uh, Dabo would be a victim of his own success. Um, you know, I thought that for a long time now. Yeah. Clemson is not and never will be an Alabama, but we think we are. Uh, they will probably never be a Georgia, but we think we are. <laughs> and I've always said, if you go eight and four and go to a good bowl game, you need to shut your mouth and be satisfied. 
Now, you know, it, it all goes. Phil Cornblue did a lot of. <laughs> he 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 gave himself a name in this state, but he did a lot of damage, I think, with all this recruiting hoopla. You know, I enjoy watching the games. I I used to enjoy going to the games, but my age has gotten so now. I, you know, I get tired of the crowds and. It's oh yeah, you're 100. You, 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 I know you. What yeah, you 103 yeah. now, Roger? Well, well, I mean, it's either too hot or it's at night. Oh hell you know, yeah! I want. Yeah. I, I don't want to participate in either one of them. I rather go to a basketball game. You can get in, go to any restaurant you want to, leave. You can get the Clemson experience. You know, really. I mean, we don't win as much, but you. It's watching the game now. I'm just. I love football more, but I love to watch it on TV. If I'm going to Clemson, I rather go to a basketball game. I mean, it's just easier. But that, I know I'm in the minority on that. But, you know, hot games or night games, I don't, I'm not interested in either one of them. And, and most of the games are one way or the other. But what I'm saying, yeah, we've gotten unrealistic. You know, people following recruiting of an 18-year-old like it's some kind of, you know, you lauding all of these stuff on him, this, that, and the other. You know, I go to games, I enjoy the games, I want them to be good discipline, but I don't care about following your recruiting of an 18-year-old high school player. That, that don't interest me. <laughs> Either you're going to recruit good players or you're going to lose and get fired. That, that ain't my job, you know. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's just crazy the way people have gotten way off kilter on all of this stuff. And I know I'm an old man rambling, but anyway, you know. <laughs> Thank you, Roger. Appreciate that. Well, and I'll say this. Um, I mean, I get as amped up as I ever have for brief periods of time. Um, I'll go a month or two or three and not think much about it. Um, signing day, I want to know how they did in recruiting. Obviously, during football season, I enjoy. Um, now, now, I've known Roger a long time, and Roger was old even when he wasn't old. So now that he is a bit older, I can imagine he is um, reflective of <laughs> of his um of his generation, so to speak. It just interested me. I mean, it really did. And guys, it doesn't matter what we talk about in the state. I mean, we talk about first in the South Republican primary, uh, South Carolina picks presidents. The, one of the biggest days in this state is when the Gamecocks and Tigers play football. I mean, if you put down a list of the 10 biggest days the state experiences every year annually, one of those 10 days probably rev one of the five days. I mean, I would imagine in, in some, you know, areas of our state, it doesn't much matter. Um, I think of Memorial Day to Labor Day, you know, the tourist season at the Grand Strand. I was down at Horry County yesterday, uh, amazed. They're going to end up building houses in the road. We're going to drive through someone's garage to get to where we're trying to go because there's no place down there to build anything else. Or they're quickly running out a place to build uh, anything. And it's not people moving from, you know, this side of the street to that side of the street but but tourism is a big deal so i think of south carolina i think of you know it begins on memorial day and it ends on on labor day i know the official seasons you know spring and summer and fall and winter i get all that but um but i think those two days are important to the state because as a um as a former politician you track revenue and you want to know what the gas numbers are like and tourism's a big contributor to our state's economy so when i was in politics i always paid attention to the first week of revenue generated by gas tax because I felt that give me a, a pretty good idea of, in other words, how does it, you know, track with last yeah. year's numbers? 
or the year and before. That's where the rubber hits the road, well, I mean, it, so it, to speak. It's very, it makes it very – Philip, Mike, and Jay will be here to be it, or one or two of the three will be here, and they'll express how important tourism is to our state. They understand um, that the good Lord has given us an ocean and a coastline, and it's hard to screw that up. I mean, we've tried for a long time. I think we're beginning to get some of the uh, factors right there. But um, but I remember in my political life, I'd always look at that number the first week and compare that number to the previous two years. And I didn't care what the economist Smith, uh, excuse me, Goldman Sachs said or J.P. Morgan said. I wanted to know what the numbers were. And if that first week's gas tax number was a good number, then you felt like the summer would reflect something similar to that. And that had a big impact on our state's budget. Um, those are big days to me. But when you think about big days in our state, the days that South Carolina is focused on, on, on something or other, there are a bunch of people in our state focused intensely on, you know, either Death Valley in Clemson or williams Bryce uh, in South Carolina. I just thought Dabo's comments were interesting. I mean, I wish the Gamecocks had that problem. They don't. Um, I guess if they ever enjoy that extended period of success, there'll be that debate. You know, is this normal or not? Well, as a Gamecock fan, I hope the past 12 years of Clemson football ain't normal. I hope <laughs> it is <laughs> an absolute anomaly. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. I spoke over in Marion Mullins yesterday. Rev went with me last year, was not able to make it this year because Friel's freezing to death in Montana. We're trying to find a new producer so Rez actually have to do some work. He can't go in his office, close the door and take a nap and, right, yeah. you know, come out when it's lunchtime and go back in when it's time or come back out when it's time to go. That's the time home. I had to work. Yeah, right? That's right. That's yeah. the way I'm, well, that's where yeah. I'm presenting yes, the, the situation. Appreciate it. When the owners who were in town the last couple of days asked me, that was the point I tried to raise <laughs> uh, with, with them. But, but as yeah. I'm, as I'm, Thanks. as I'm driving to, 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 to Marin Mullins and I'm thinking about uh, what it is we're talking about, I didn't want to go over there and be disagreeable. I didn't want to create division and, and, you know, create controversy. We do that on the morning show. Um, we try to get you to scratch your head a little bit and maybe disagree with something the host says to the point of inspiring a call or reaction or some sort of interaction. But I'm driving over and I'm thinking about, in, in essence, politics is a word business. I mean, I'm not going over there to drive nails. I'm not going over there to cut boards or, or put an air in a tire. I mean, I'm going over there to speak. Remember what I say about Barack Obama, the spoken word is not an accomplishment. It is not, but it's a big part of American politics. Uh, politics is, in essence, a word business. Now, now Washington leadership, Columbia leadership, um, sometimes find the words to back up their actions. Um, sometimes they don't. But I read, uh, might have been, uh, been Wednesday when I read what Peggy Noonan wrote in the Wall Street Journal, when she talked about people tiring of the two political parties and she was talking about the Democrats and, you know, their, um, their obsessiveness with this agenda to basically redefine the industrialization of the planet based on uh, climate change. You know, that seems to be what they're really focused. When you get Democrats intensely motivated, it's, it's, um, it's this, this social and economic reconstruction policed by what they believe is a is an imminent threat climate change um you know the end of mankind as we know it depending on extraterrestrials like john Kerry to come to the uh, to come to the rescue but but the democrats have i don't want to say morphed into a party stringently adhering to those um those thoughts and premises but, but in essence they have 
And, and when you look at the data, it clearly shows that America's not enamored with that. But, but you know, once again, this, um, this social and economic reconstruction based on um, some proof and evidence, I mean, I'll give that, and there is some proof and evidence that shows the planet is warming. There's some proof and evidence that shows man is contributing uh, to some of that. There ain't enough for me, but there's some. But 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 I, I go back, and then you go to the to the Republicans, and and I thought of this yesterday. The Republicans have a limited government. The the the, the government is limited in its ability to do what it says it's going to do. I mean, it's clumsy, it's forceful, it's um, it's it's difficult to navigate. So when we say that um. That the you know the the Republicans want a limited government. They don't have a limited government. I think the way and Peggy Noonan actually says it that um we we want a a we want a government that is not so pushy. In other words, it is um it is lean, but it doesn't push us around. It doesn't demand more from us than is due. Now I'm giving Peggy Peggy Noonan. I'm paraphrasing her article I read, but it's kind of an interesting paragraph. Um, when she said, because I'm thinking about the social and economic reconstruction that the Democrats aspire for based on some of what is true, mostly of what is not. Now, that's my interpretation uh, of the facts. But then you go to the Democrats, excuse me, the Republicans. What is the Republicans' big idea? Uh, but if there are, uh, you know, a, a, a cabal of Democrats who believe in this social rearrangement, this economic rearrangement, and the reason we need to do this is because places on the planet will be uninhabitable. You know, the boiling oceans. Um, once again, we're depending on extraterrestrials like John Kerry to make sure we don't boil in the ocean when we go to the beach July 4th weekend. You know, that, I mean, that's kind of, I mean, it says that. I mean, they, they, these are not. I mean, I'm not trying to be, you know, I'm not embellishing things that Kerry says or misrepresenting right. things John Kerry uh, has said. But then you go to the to the Republicans, and I want limited government. Well, you've got a limited government. It's very limited in its abilities. <laughs> it's kind of, I mean, I think Noonan may have said it's slow and stupid is what it is. Uh, that's not real complicated, but it's pretty accurate. The federal government is a slow, stupid uh, but amoeba. It's expensive and overpriced. But, but, but okay, but, but it's pushy. That's what it's become. I mean, I used the word, Noonan didn't, I've used the word punitive. I mean, the federal government has become a very punitive apparatus. Well, let me find something wrong with society and not just encourage a fix. Let me demand a fix right. under my terms and conditions. Rules, regulations. You better believe lockdowns, vaccine mandates, um, mask ordinances. Um, and we've, I don't want to say we've embraced that. We've accepted that far more than I'm comfortable with. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Here is Breeze. Good morning. Hey, guys. You know, uh, I was talking, been talking all along about the intentionality of everything that's going on. And I was now convinced they've intentionally destroyed the economy. And then it looks like they're intentionally trying to start a war with Ukraine. And Lindsey Graham was right there behind it. I guess y'all watched Tucker. You know, where he was uh, bringing out the obvious. You got Lindsey supposedly backing Trump, but at the same time, Lindsey is asking for tanks and F-16s to send to the Ukraine. Trump is accusing Biden of starting World War III by getting by sending tanks and um, F-16s to the Ukraine. I mean, Lindsey disagrees with everything there is about Trump. And Lindsey disagreed about everything Trump was doing while he was president. 
and, and then, I mean, does nobody not see the evil there? Now, I'll tell you this also. They aren't predicting a food shortage. They are intentionally causing a food shortage. And I will tell you, and, and, and Tucker came back. Of course, it was first on, first broken on your radio show. But even Tucker was talking about the egg situation. And then farmers were wondering about the feed. There's something going on, and I believe Bill Gates and some of those people behind it, but the food shortage will not be an accident. Ninety-six food processing plants all happened to get destroyed or damaged during the Biden administration in two years. Now, there's no record of that, so we can see what the odds are because they didn't want to take a record of that. But what are the real odds of 96 food processing plants all being destroyed um, in one, in one, and having fires and all over a two-year period. And you think that's a coincidence? Come on, guys. This is, this, is a big, this is a big plan they got going, and it's working. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. Okay, let's go down this road for a second. Um, I'm speaking to the group yesterday in Marion Mullins. When I finished speaking, someone, I'll take questions. Someone asked a question about the world order. I mean, you always get one of those questions. Now, now you got to be careful because you're not choosing your audience, right? I mean, it, we, we have a pretty good idea. I mean, if you're inclined to listen to conservative talk radio at 630 in the morning, you're probably more in line with our worldview than not. But when you go to a Lions Club meeting or a Rotary Club meeting or any other civic organization in uh, small town USA or big city USA, you're, you're not expecting to hear somebody, you know, give a red meat political speech. If I go to the RNC, they expect that. I mean, I'm expected to deliver some of those some of those talking points. So I'm always guarded when I go to one of these civic events to not – I've convinced myself I'm not there as a radio show host but a political pundit to give some sort of narrative or overview on what I see as happening in the world around us. And it's far less partisan than it is on the radio. You folks are by and large partisans. I am a partisan. I want Republicans to win elections. I want Republicans to implement limited government principles and practices. I make no bones about that. I am very skeptical of government. But when I go to a, a Rotary or Lions Club, I don't know how many of those people are skeptical of government. They may perceive me to be a wacko. I mean, he's one of those nuts who hosts radio shows in the morning and, you know, jack up an audience and get an audience all riled up about being, you know, uh, you can't trust government and the government's trying to, you know, um, create food shortages and all these other sorts of things. But but somebody asked me yesterday about the world order, and, and I said, okay, you call it the world order. I call it Davos. I call it the World Economic Forum. Um, I said, I'm, you know, I remember my father saying something like, there are a thousand people who run the world, and we live in the world of which they're in control of. Well, when my dad said that, as a younger person, I'm like, my dad's a conspiracy theorist. I mean, he's nuts. Yeah. Next thing you know, he'll say there's some balloon floating around over America <laughs> with, with, with Chinese assets spying on Americans, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but, but when the person asked a question about the world order or the new world order, um, I mean, I read more about that than he does. He's probably smarter than I am. He's not as informed because he doesn't read. He doesn't host a radio show that requires him to be as versed as I think I am on some of these issues. But, but how many of us are willing to go down the road? That not only is Bill Gates a wealthy, influential philanthropist, he's diabolical and maniacal. I mean, I'm willing to accept Bill Gates as a, a an incredibly wealthy philanthrop philanthropist. And I, and I think that Gates, in his heart, believes he's doing some good things 
with malaria vaccines and other medical treatments in third world countries. Uh, I get that. I mean, I think there's, there's some validity there. But how many of us are willing to kind of turn to the next page of the life of Bill Gates and say, he's trying to control food and energy. He's trying to be in charge of things that are essential to our existence, things we can't live without. I mean, how many of you can live your life without energy? How many of you can live your life without food? Answer, nobody, none of us can do that. We can debate and argue and, and whine and complain about the road should have been built here. The school should have been built there. The curriculum should have been this or that or the other. But, but Breeze is opening a door that most people, I mean, we think there's something back there, but we don't want to expose ourselves to the ridicule that comes along with kind of going too far down that road. Are they really messing with the chicken feed? Oh, but is this just something that an, an ingredient got left out because of the supply chain disruption? Or are they intentionally doing this to, you know, uh, chickens don't have as many eggs. Eggs become more expensive. There's a food shortage somewhere out there. See, that's when we get real guarded. We're willing to accept that Bill Gates ain't everything he says he is. I mean, you're nodding your head. I mean, Bill Gates oh, is yeah. a wealthy philanthropist. We know that. I mean, there, there's a documented paper trail of Gates making a lot of money and giving a lot of money. But when you go to the next page of the, the life of Bill Gates, it gets a little bit murky. It gets real confusing. What else is Bill Gates up to? I don't know. I don't have any idea. I mean, if I read MSNBC, he's a wealthy philanthropist, and that's it. He's trying to, you know, raise the plight of mankind on the planet. If I go to the American conservative, they say something similar to what Bree says. Bill Gates is not who he says he is. When he's not at Epstein Island, he's meeting with food processing plants, trying to figure out a way to control the food supply in America, the energy supply in America, and we don't know what to believe. And I'm here leveling with you. I don't know what to believe. A lot of us believe the last person we talked to. When I was in political, when I was in a political crap storm, and I would talk to somebody who said, man, you're going to jail for the rest of your life. I almost believed it. And then I would go across the street. The guy said, hey, I ain't going to do anything to you. I mean, you'll be fine. People do this all the time. Don't you worry about it. And I believe that. Well, I'd get in my car and go home. And I said, I can't believe both. I mean, there's no way both can be true. But we are so easily influenced. <laughs> it's a bit unsettling. Well, I mean, but you see where I'm headed. Yeah. I mean, people who appear to know what they're talking about have an influence on how we perceive or how we consume information. So, so, so you get in your car and you go home and you say, okay, Bill Gates is a wealthy philanthropist. Made a lot of money with Microsoft. He's given a lot of money away to third world countries in the name of healthcare and vaccines. But, but there's some other things about him that, that I'm hearing. I don't know them to be true. I mean, we know that to be true. We know it's a known fact that Bill Gates is a multi-billionaire, one of the wealthiest men in the history of mankind. We know that. We know that he and, found And I've it. admired him over years because of what he did, and he revolutionized computers and technology and became the richest man in the world, kind of one of the first that I remember people talking about, this man is the, the richest man in the world. And was philanthropic. And that's right. And, and began and, giving a lot of money away. He talked about those foundations and giving all of his money away you know, for good causes. Just didn't talk about it. He did a lot right. of it. I mean, there, there's recorded documents of Gates giving a billion dollars here and a couple of billion dollars. But then you go a little deeper but, and it gets a little bit murky and confusing. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Takes Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937, our number. Well, you know, I, I don't normally fancy myself a conspiracy theorist, okay? 
Um, I try to keep my you know, level head, logic, logic in my brain at all times. But uh, a point that Breeze brought up this morning, I thought about a lot, and it doesn't get a lot of play on the news, and that is the food processing plants and the disruptions. I mean, we understand the the supply chain issues that that have been affecting our economy and our basically our products for a while. Uh, but there has been, it seems, like an extraordinary amount of incidents related to food production and processing. I mean, and he said, what, 96 or something? And, and, and I remember you'd read a headline about uh, a plane crashed into a processing plant or they had a fire and it was destroyed, you know, one after another after another. So, so what are you saying? Well, I, mean, I, I don't disagree with anything, but what are you saying? Well, I just begin to wonder, is wonder it intentional? Okay. Is it intentional? If it's intentional, why? That, that's what I don't know. I mean, but, but why would, I mean, can you argue that it seems like some people in government, I don't know if I'd say the president or not, didn't I want to go that far, but want to destroy the economy of our nation? Well, I mean, but, but what, what do they gain by destroying? I don't know. That's the part that's confusing. Okay, fair enough. I mean, and, I, I, don't, I don't disagree with some of what you said, but those dots are hard to connect. If yeah. they're intentionally tr- creating chaos in the economy, what is, the, what is in it for them, so to speak? And, and maybe it all comes down to what you talked about, which is the what they consider the existential threat of climate change. If they don't destroy our, uh, you know, no matter what it takes, okay, if it takes destroying the uh, industrial economy uh, to save the planet, so be it. So what, what you're but saying is, you're basic. I'm, I'm, I'm not being confrontational with no, you, but you're basically saying that the Hollywood script ain't a Hollywood script. I mean, some of that has played out in real I life. I wonder. Okay, fair enough. Let's go to the phone. Here's Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. I, I try to read and find the truth and then convey some of those things so people will maybe fact-check what I say and, and find out for themselves and learn a little more. You know, they keep changing the definition of words because there's certain things in life that don't change, and that's the truth. The truth doesn't change. I don't care if it's a rose by any other name, it's a rose. You know, Bernie Sanders is a good example. He's this devout socialist and can't stand capitalism, but he's selling a book for 20 bucks. And oh, by the way, if you want me to tell you about that book, come buy a ticket for $95 and let me explain it to you. Now, if that's not, and, he's, and he owns like three $5 million homes. And Joe Biden, all the rest of these hypocrites will tell you, you've got to get off of fossil fuels, but they fly around the world in, in private jets. There's, there's four categories of things that make the world go round with fossil fuels that cannot be replaced by renewable energy, concrete and asphalt, Steel, plastic, and ammonia. Now, you get rid of any of those things and your life changes quite dramatically, especially ammonia, because that's the base of all nitrates, everything that's for fertilizer that feeds the world. You'll, you'll, you know, you get, you get rid of fossil fuels and half the population is gone right away. And that's a power thing. And they keep, telling you what you know is not a man can be a woman. No, no, you can't. Just like now they're saying, oh, we're up against the debt ceiling. 
because of that evil Donald Trump's tax cuts. But if you read the government's own information after those tax cuts, you know, the CBO said the government over 10 years would lose $580 billion. That's $58 billion less than what they were taking in now. When they passed those tax cuts, revenue to the government was $3.3 trillion. 2022, the government took in $4.9 trillion. Revenue from corporate business is up 46%. Overall revenue is up 22%. While they brought in $4.9 trillion, they spent 6.2. So it doesn't matter what you get in revenue. If you spend more than you take in, you are going broke. They keep talking about Social Security. It's in a trust fund. They keep saying that trust fund is P-bills. P-bills are government debt. So they tax you for Social Security. They tax you to pay for those P-bills. And then they tax you when you draw your Social Security. I don't understand why people aren't in Washington, D.C., every person in the United States with pitchforks ready to run these people out of town because they keep lying to them. But that's all I try to do is find the truth, convey it a little bit, let them think about it. And if you want to change it, fine. If not, that's fine, too, because I'm... I don't know what to do. People don't aren't interested. You know, we're going to end up like Europe, where they, you tax seventy percent, and you know you're taking care of cradle to grave. But thank you, Joe. Thank we got to take a break. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Hey, someone asked me yesterday in Mullins Marion because it's kind of between the two. It's where the, the club meets, and it's at a, at a good restaurant, um, a really good restaurant, good listener, um, good group of people. But someone stood up and asked, "Can any country issue debt?" Yeah, there's a market for it. I mean, Guam. You want some Guam debt? 843-661-0937. Back in a minute. Doesn't matter if you know what you're talking about. If you sound like you sound know what you're like talking it. about, that's half the battle. Um, some of these things I'm talking about, I don't know the answers to, but I know you don't. So we have these very <laughs> candid, frank, and unknown um, conversations. 843-661-0937. We've settled on a deal with um, Congressman Russell Fry. Um, Friday, F-R-Y-D-A-Y, will be every seven, excuse me, every other Friday at 735. That's kind of our, I mean, it'll be around the 730 time slot, but Congressman Fry has agreed to join us every other, let me back up. He wants to join us every other Friday at 730-ish to kind of update on us what he's doing, what the committees are doing um, as we work through a new session of the United States Congress. Let's go to the phone. Matt in Florence. Morning, Matt. Hey, guys, uh, this is just something Dave was talking about earlier when we're talking about food shortages and things like that. Um, I don't know if it's Democrats or Davos or whatever, but it seems like the intention is to make people more reliant upon the government. Like uh, we were having car troubles, uh, getting chips and things like that, and so we started begging the government to figure it out. Uh, They just create a situation, and then we have to go to them for help. They mess with the chicken feed, and then we can't get eggs, so everybody starts going, hey, government, Mr. Man, help us, you know, help us figure out what's going on. Uh, There was another situation that was kind of like that. I can't think of what it is right now, but 
I, I just think that that's the ultimate power, the ultimate belief in Democrats is that they don't like independent people that don't need them. And so they create situations where the people that normally don't need them have to come begging them for a solution. Um, and it's all about taking away the free will. They believe that our decision-making and the, the fact that we can sustain ourselves is the problem. And so, but they also don't want to take away freedom from us. They want us to hand it over willingly. Um, thank, that's just kind of the well, way they want it to go. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate that. And baby formula was the other thing. Well, let's go to that. I mean, that's got an interesting theory there that they want you to be dependent upon government. Um, let's go to two hurricanes. I mean, if you're if you're one of these um if you're one of these big government advocates, I mean, if you're Al Gore or John Kerry or you know Bill Clinton, the Clinton Global Initiative was about government involvement in affairs around the world, and I'm not arguing that government has no role or responsibility. I mean, I think in a civil society, government has some percentage of influence on how we live our lives. I'll accept that. I mean, I can really and truly, I mean, modern American government can force me to the edge of anarchy, but I haven't jumped yet. I mean, there's something about you got to stay on your side of the road. I got to stay on mine that I accept as normal in a civil and uh, and respectful society. But let's hang on to this for a second. Let's use two examples of um, real world application. So Hugo hit South Carolina in the late eighties. What was it? 89, 89, 89. When Hugo hit uh, the coast of South Carolina ravaged the coast, um, that there were certain conditions that existed that allowed the hurricane to be much stronger inland than normal. Um, and you know, houses were obliterated. Uh, you know, our lives were in upheaval or turmoil. The majority of us cranked our tractors up, cranked our chainsaws up, uh, you know, grabbed our, our chains and our hooks and our cables and our cords and our whatever, and we dug out. But the government helped. FEMA was there. Uh, the Red Cross was there, not a government agency, but there, there, were, there were assisting agencies all over South Carolina. But the majority of people in my world didn't wait on government to do anything. The trees on my house, I don't know what Congress's responsibility is to that, but it's my house, my tree, my yard. I got to get it off. And people began to work. They began to work to rebuild their lives the way they were before Hugo hit. People were devastated. People were deeply concerned. They were anxious. They were nervous. They were afraid. They were sad. They cried. They hugged. People's lives were fundamentally changed and altered right there before our very eyes. The coastline of South Carolina, uh, imagine Francis Marion National Forest, was completely and totally reshaped. But very few of us waited on the government to tell us what to do or the government to cut the tree off of your home or clean your yard up or help you, you know, get your neighbor back on his feet. Go, go to Katrina, New Orleans, generational welfare. How many times did we see a lady or gentleman in New Orleans say, I don't know what to do because the government hadn't got here yet. My yard is a mess. My house is flooded and I don't know what to do because some government agency hadn't come to bail me out or to tell me what I need to do. And that's, I mean, we got to do better than that. Um, 843-661-0937. Man, this is disturbing. Some of this um, I'm just craziness that. on on television, the violence on a school bus. Let's go to the phone. Uh, we have Verd in Marlboro County. Hey, Verd. Good morning. How y'all doing? 
Good morning, Bert. Uh, big thing this weekend, we got our first uh, quarterly meeting of the South Carolina Republican Party Executive Committee uh, tomorrow. And, of course, Drew McKissick, uh, still the chair of the South Carolina Republican Party, will stay the chair. He's also the new co-chair of the National Republican Party, which is going to be huge for South Carolina. And I uh, just uh, want to congratulate Drew McKissick, uh, well-earned uh We've shattered all kind of records in the last six years with Drew McKissick running our state Republican Party, and I just look for great things for South Carolina. It's going to bring a lot of attention, going to bring a lot of money to South Carolina, and uh, it's just uh, uh, back to the politics, off your election, but the politics is already cranked up. I understand Ms. Haley is considering a run in February and uh, or going out to run, so... Things are going to get hot and heavy, even though it's going to be an off-year for elections. Bird, what is the perception of the party operatives of Governor Haley today? Do, do you have any idea? I mean, I, I'm not asking you personally, because that, that's none of my business. But, but in general, what do Republican primary voters think today of former Governor Nikki Haley? Or what do you suspect they feel? Uh, I would suspect they are not in her corner. Uh, I think that uh, I read, you know, I keep up with the stuff like you do, Ken, and I read all the tea leaves that people write about and everything. And I, I don't really, in truth, they don't know why she's getting in. I mean, she's polling at like 3% right now. She She's right in there with Carmela Harris when she was running. Um, I've seen very few polls that had her much above 3% or 4%. So I don't know what the uh, reasoning is for her jumping in. You know, she talked about not she would not run against President Trump in 2024. And for some reason, she's made a change of heart. But no, I, I don't really think she's going to go very far. Uh, I think she's a fine lady. I think she was a great governor. But I just don't think the uh, the people are behind her. And uh, you know, she has some past history, you know, with the uh, uh, Confederate flag. You know, a lot of people, even though that's a small issue with a, uh, a good many of the electorate, there's still a lot of people that just still... Uh, that vile her because of her stance on the uh, Confederate flag, moving it from the uh, state house. So I don't know, Ken. I, I really, truthfully, I'm like a lot of people. I'm trying to figure out what, why did why did she get in now when she said she wouldn't? And you know, you got to look at the polls. I mean, she's she's way, way, way down, low, lower than the lower tier. You know. Thank you, Bird. Appreciate that. Now, I don't want to. I don't want to. I will say this: when Nikki ran for governor, she polled similarly. I mean, she was way down to the poll. It was Gresham and Henry and Andre and I think even Larry Grooms, senator from Berkeley County, was ahead of Nikki. Um, and as I said before, I had a front row seat to that because I was running for lieutenant governor at the same time Nikki was running for governor. And she caught fire when Sarah Palin came to Columbia and endorsed her. It would have been the high water mark of the Tea Party movement. She became somewhat of a Tea Party darling. Um, th- th- there's a certain consultant in South Carolina that, that I know that was on Tucker Carlson's show and I didn't have any idea what he was going to say. I mean, because I didn't know what sort of relationship. I know the relationship he and Nikki had, but I don't know the one they have now. And apparently it's soured. <laughs> I'll just oh, really? say that apparently it's soured because he talked about that um, Nikki's never finished a job. She was a member of the House, didn't finish her term, ran for governor. Uh, left the governorship in her second term to become ambassador of the U.N. Left that job to become a member of the Boeing corporate board. Left that job to become, I mean, everything's always been, and, and I've said it yesterday, and I'll stick to my guns, she's ambitious and she's very disciplined. I mean, that, that those are two qualities that, that are almost prerequisites to be successful in American politics. If you aren't disciplined, you struggle. If you aren't ambitious, 
you struggle. And she puts a check in, and I'm talking about a bold check in, in the box of ambition, in the box of discipline. Now, now you know, authenticity, um, sincerity, uh, yeah, th- th- those are, you know, we always question the motivation of American politicians. But um, but I don't see a path forward. I think we explained it. I mean, you gave me a little credit yesterday off the air about explaining the Nikki dynamic in relation to this, uh, you know, this this linear graph that has Trump on one end and Chris Christie on another. And where is Nikki on that graph? You know, you got a 50-yard line that divides the graph between a little bit America first and a little bit establishment. To the left of the 50 is a little bit establishment. To the right of the 50 is a little bit America first. Um, I, I'm sorry, but I think Nikki's to the left of the 50. I think she's far more establishment than she is America first. I know she worked for the former president. I know she ran as a conservative um, governor, and to some degree, she was a conservative um, governor. But but I still believe the voters in the Republican primary are not going to vote for someone on they on the other side of the 50. They may vote for a Rand Paul. You know, Rand Paul was the guy we talked about. Rand Paul's probably more America first than Donald Trump is. I mean, in all honesty, when you look at kind of kind of an anti-globalist, anti-interventionist, patriotic stance, Rand Paul's probably as, I mean, he's got this libertarianism about him, and he's got this quirkiness about him that makes it difficult for him to win elections other than, uh, you know, senator in Kentucky. But he's been consistent. Well, he's been very consistent in his, you know, his pronouncements and his stances, and he's risked some political fate in future by saying things about debt and and, and about, you know, um, Social Security but he's talked about some of the entitlements that other politicians just refuse um, to go and, there. And as you pointed out, too, there was only there's only one real candidate we're talking about that is to the right of the 50, uh, between the 50 and Donald Trump. Well, and uh, DeSantis. Right. You know, we're waiting to see what DeSantis, they actually went back and forth a little bit yesterday. I've got some notes here about DeSantis. Oh, I missed that. And they're arguing on who gave in to the, um, to the COVID. Uh, you know, in other words... Trump kind of Ron DeSanctimonious says he was the you know the governor that kept the state open. Um, not so much the case. I think DeSantis gets in. You do well. I mean, okay. Trump's trying to define. I mean, Trump's doing exactly what he always does: defining his opponent before his opponent has a chance to define himself. Right, um, little Marco. You know, um, uh, Lion Lion Ted. Ted <laughs> you know, a lazy jab. You know, I mean, this. And, and, crooked and, Hillary. Yeah, well, I mean, Crooked Hillary. It just stuck, so he's trying to run to sanctimonious. You know, um, <laughs> the guy says he's something that he's really not, and and DeSantis has responded to some degree, not, not as much, but I think if Trump didn't believe DeSantis was getting in, he'd probably be advised to leave him alone, and he'd probably take some of that advice at heart. But I just got to believe there's some internals that we don't know about. Um, I mean, we don't know everything, rest assured, and I think there are probably some people on Team Trump that think DeSantis is getting in, so let's define him now before he gets a chance to get in and define himself. It's Trump's strategy, and it's pretty effective. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Uh, good morning. Uh, Ken, I wouldn't under, underrate your uh, intuition about these things, even though you may not be able to prove it in court. But uh, as far as Nikki Haley goes, uh, she's likable in many ways. And uh, but her strategy's always been uh, airborne, sh- shoot and scooped. You know that, that she just keep she keeps moving, and like you said, she is very ambitious and she is very disciplined. So she, uh, I wouldn't count her out. I think she'd show up on the register somewhere. I don't know 
her personal motivations for these things at all. But what I called you about is like uh, the uh, I think there is something going on as far as the food processing and, and messing with the chicken feed. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to mess up chicken feed to where a chicken won't lay eggs uh, at least once a week. And uh, the, uh, that, that thing bothers me. But have you noticed something really strange? I noticed during the Davos thing is uh, Al Gore looks more and more like Jabba the Hutt from Star Wars. And uh, I think uh, John Kerry has uh, decided he's an alien life form or he's in uh, controlled by an alien life form. And you got these guys, uh, Mallorcas. Uh, I mean, he looks like some guy off of uh, Star Trek or something. Yeah, maybe they are. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Maybe they are extraterrestrials. I don't know. Maybe they're. Um, <laughs> maybe they are superhuman, um, and, and the rest of us are subhuman. I don't. I don't have any idea. Um, the one thing about Nikki that I do believe, if somebody to the left of the fifty, and I'm not talking about liberal conservative, I'm talking about the the, the linear graph, America first extreme on one end establishment extreme on the other if you're to the left of the 50 you're more establishment than america first if anybody on the left of that 50 could get to the other side by selling quote unquote a bill of goods it would be former governor haley once again ambitious disciplined talented to some degree nikki's a talented um, politician um a little bit exclusive exclusivity is a big deal to the political market i mean it is who else is out there like nikki I mean, there's a lot of Chris Christie's, a lot of John Kasich's, a lot of Mike Pompeo's, a lot of Mike Pence's. I mean, that's kind of the flavor of the party. Um, there's 100 Mike Pence's running around at the GOP. There's 100 Mike Pompeo's running around. How many Nikki Haley's are running around? Christy Noem, I guess, comes to mind. You know, if she were to be that ambitious and, and, and believe now's the right time to jump in, I don't think she believes that. Obviously, she doesn't because you don't hear her name uh, bandied about, but Christy Noem is is, is kind of unique in that world. So despite Nikki being on one side of the 50, and I think it's the wrong side of the 50, I think there's a chance that if given enough resources, she could be, you know, a um, a more ably represented candidate. I don't think there's a chance in this world she wins the nomination. I just don't. I mean, I don't see that in a million years. And I said yesterday, and I'll stick to my guns here, I think Nikki was plucked and then promised a lot of things because the establishment believes she's the only person they can mislead the America Firsters about. I mean, I sincerely believe that. You can't take Christie and turn him into something else. You can't take Kasich. You can't take Jeb Bush. You can't take, you know, Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence. I mean, all those folks have a certain following, but it's very small in the Republican Party today. I think the establishment says, look, we can get Nikki to disguise herself as an America firster. And if we spend enough money on a political campaign, we can sneak in uh, to a plurality enough, not a majority, a plurality enough to win some of these states, become a competitor. And, and all of a sudden it boils down to Nikki or Trump. Now this is with the assumption that DeSantis doesn't get in. Nikki has a better chance without DeSantis than she does with DeSantis. DeSantis gets in. What does it do? It splits some of the Trump vote. I mean, I would be one that would seriously consider voting for Ron DeSantis if he got in, but if he doesn't, I'm Trump, 1,000% Trump, 1,000,000% Trump. But if DeSantis gets in, I'm kind of scratching my head and figuring out what is the next move or best move that I can make.
Um, there is no choice for me between Nikki and Trump. There is a very legitimate decision to make if it's Trump and DeSantis. And I think a lot of people feel similar to the way I feel. Take a break. Back in just a few. 843-661-0937. Our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. John and Lamar. Good morning, John. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, Ken, I want to back up on you a little bit. Uh, you were talking about earlier about uh, the conspiracy theory and about all the uh, uh, processing plants, stuff like that have been attacked. Um, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm assuming you're aware of it. I, I, matter of fact, I know you probably are. But, you know, for about the last 20 or 30 years, all we've heard about is they've been trying to take away our guns and disarm the people. And if you look at it um, through history, every regime that's been in power that has took control of their people and become socialist for communist countries, they disarm people, they keep them cold, and keep them hungry until they submit. And if you remember back when Obama was president, they started talking about a new world order where they wanted a one-world government. So, you know, I'm probably a conspiracy theorist saying that. But all at the same time, if you look at the the head conspiracy theorists like Glenn Beck and them, a lot of the stuff they said 10 years ago has come true today. So I just wanted to bring that to your attention because, that, yeah, I don't hear a lot of people talking about that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, I think it's a real, a, a real threat to America and our society. Thank you, boys. Have a good day. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. See, I don't think it's a conspiracy at all to believe that people in government want to control you. I mean, I, I don't think that's a conspiracy. I think you're naive if you don't believe that. I mean, I'm not saying Jay Jordan, Philip Lowe, and Mike Rickenbaugh. I'm talking about the Bernie seems, Sanders of the seems world. Seems to be the Democrat way. Sure. I mean, the the, the, um, the John Kerry, Al Gores of the world um, that believe they have this moral and intellectual high ground, the Barack Obamas of the world, the Clintons. I mean, I'm not saying just liberals. I mean, I think there are some conservatives in America that would be just fine. You know, the Bushes of the world. I mean, I think they like influence of the world all of us live in. I think they believe sincerely that they're entitled via a, um, you know, a higher intellect and a higher morality and a higher calling to be in charge of the world around us. I don't think that's conspiratorial. I mean, I really and truly don't. And then you get into motivations and, and what the priorities are. What, what you know, what, what are they up to if the, if the eggs are twice as much today as they were previously. Um, but but to believe that somebody, I don't want to go back to John, to believe that the government or some people within government, I didn't say the God, I think when we say the government, it's like the Russians. What the hell do you mean whether you say the Russians or the Chinese? I mean, do we not believe there are good and decent people in Russia that don't like what Putin's doing or good and decent people in China who don't like what, what Xi is doing? But we're real good at casting with, with a broad net. You know, those Russians, those Chinese, <laughs> those people in government. But, but no, I don't think it's conspiratorial at all to suggest that there are people in government that like having control over more and more and more aspects of our life. And I think Kerry and Gore and Barack Obama symbolize that. I, th I think if you've got a kind of a genetic makeup that leads you to be more conservative in nature, you're less inclined to want to be in charge of other people. It's kind of the quandary conservatives find themselves in when they're running for office. So I'm a conservative or I'm a libertarian and I'm running for office and I want to be a part of something that I want to lose power. And then I'm a liberal and I'm running against this conservative. And my platform is I want to be a part of government because I want government to do more, be more, have more control, be more intrusive. You, you see where I'm headed? I mean, that, that's kind of why would I commit as much energy and resource to be a part of something I don't like right. as you would to be a part of something you do like. I mean, it's kind of a natural 
um, disproportionality that I think conservatives um, have to deal with. 843-661-0937 is our number we have with us as scheduled. Um, Congressman Russell Fry, good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning. It's good to be back in the district, that's for sure. So this is not Friday, F-R-I-D-Y. This is Friday, F-R-Y-D-A-Y. And um, Russell's agreed to be a regular feature every other week as we can. I mean, maybe there'll be a, a time or two he doesn't make it. But every other week at about this time, Russell's going to be with us to try and update us on what's happening in Washington. Um, let, let me ask you this, um, Congressman. Are you drinking from a fire hose or have we settled down to a place of <laughs> better understanding uh, kind of where the agenda is and where the party wants to take the country? I, I think both, right? I mean, I think in, in some way, I mean, we, we, we've been up there for about a month, um, you know, so you feel like you're getting your sea legs, but we're still doing things like populating committees, getting committee hearings started. You know, I'll tell you this week I had, uh, you talk about being two places at once sometimes, we had both judiciary and oversight committee hearings at the same time. Fortunately for me, since I serve on both, they're right next to each other. But, you know, you take off, you put on one hat and go in the room and you're talking about border security. And then you leave in 45 minutes after you listen for a little bit and go to the other one. So you're trying to keep up and uh, balance things. So, uh, but it was a good week, very busy week for sure. You drew the long straw on committees. You got judiciary and oversight and some of the other, I don't want to say meaningless committees, but committees that aren't um, as relevant to, to the, to, I don't know, the, um, the outward debate in American politics today. So, Russell, let's go to judiciary first. Um, what do you perceive the priorities to be, and what can we, the voters, expect out of that committee? Well, look, I think judiciary and oversight are going to be key uh, committees in, in the next Congress, right? I mean, all the things from an oversight perspective and looking at what is going on in our government and what the American people are frustrated at are going to culminate in those two committees. I mean, everyone that I've talked to, I mean, that, that was a big win, I think, for, for me uh, to land on both of those and, and certainly for the district to kind of be in the middle of that stuff. You know, on judiciary this past week, we focused on Biden's border problem, right? These, these are, and we had a sheriff uh, from Arizona. We had some other panelists. We had a, a gentleman, Mr. Dunn, who lost his son to fentanyl. Um, there were people on the panel uh, and, and really kind of highlighting. And the sheriff was very apt. You know, when Biden came in, if you remember, um, he got rid of a ton of Trump policies that really secured the border. And so getting testimony from an on-the-ground sheriff uh, who says that that those policies did well, um, that they did well for the border, the Trump policies, and then to turn around and reverse those on the first day of his administration, the border is less secure. We have more fentanyl, more human trafficking, more crossings than ever before, more deaths than ever before associated with fentanyl. Crime is on the rise in these border communities. So that was really, I think, impactful. And then, of course, from the oversight perspective this past week, you know, we had the CARES Act, we had ARPA, we had all these things that came out because of the pandemic, but there weren't a lot of guardrails in place. And what we've seen is about $500 billion uh, was either misallocated or attributed to fraud. Uh, even in our own district, we had somebody that pled guilty and was sentenced um, just a couple weeks ago for $500,000 through a series of fake Social Security numbers. Uh, and things like that. So there was zero oversight in the last two years. I mean, Nancy Pelosi and all of her henchmen did not want to investigate these things and figure out. And, but this, to me, is like not partisan. When you look at, you know, should money go to foreign countries like Romania, China, Russia, um, and the like? No, it absolutely should not. 
how did this happen and what can we do to prevent it in the future? Uh, I think the American people deserve those answers, uh, and we're starting to get to the bottom of those now. Russell, so kind of from a committee perspective, this past week, one of the stories, and you're in the policy business there. You know, where, where did the money go? What, what sort of job is the, um, you know, are we doing to secure the southern border? But but we're in talk radio, and then there's a high degree of interest in the Hunter Biden story. Um, some of the news broke yesterday. Will you be a part of investigating what the facts are? And and once again, if Hunter Biden is a degenerate who loves drugs and prostitutes, that's his business. But if that was an accessible or if that was an avenue to, to basically te- peddle political influence from the American government, that, that's a different animal. Um, are you go- is the oversight or judiciary going to be a part of investigating the Hunter Biden laptop story? Absolutely. And I'm, I'm thrilled about that, right? I mean, and, and Democrats, of course, you know, have poo-pooed this for the longest time. Uh, and, and you remember that when the story broke, one, Twitter and, and social media censored it. And they, they kind of couched it in, you know, foreign uh, government uh, uh, misinformation, right? That's kind of how they, they blocked it. Um, and Democrat, and then there were 51 people who were in the intelligence community who said it was Russian disinformation. Well, guess what? He admitted to owning the laptop this week. I mean, this, the American people suspected this. I mean, you had people, you had the, the computer store owner who, who said this, who went to the FBI first, like any American would, who said, hey, I have Hunter Biden's laptop, and hey, you probably need to take a look at this. And they basically kind of threatened him and, and told him not to talk about it, right? So that's when he gave it to Rudy Giuliani as well. I mean, this is this is big. And when you have... There was a, uh, a statistic that I looked at this week. When you have 17% of Democrats in swing states that say if they knew this story prior to the election and it wasn't you know, Russian disinformation or whatever, they would have changed their vote. This, out, this, this potentially, it looks like, did impact the, the outcome of an election on a presidential scale. So I think this is big. One, that you have government kind of trying to find ways to stifle the story and keep it from coming up Two, that you have big tech involved in it. Um, and they're, and they're working with government actors to try to suppress the story and suppress other stories too, unrelated to this. And then three, the substance of the laptop itself and what's in it and why it's a problem for the American people. I mean, I think this is big and both of those committees in a lot of different angles are going to be right in the middle of, of this entire story. Russell, last question I want to ask and topic I want to touch on is debt. Um, there seemed to be a deal with Kevin McCarthy and some of the Freedom Caucus or members of the Freedom Caucus about appropriating and budgeting and amending the budget, uh, the way government's right. supposed to work with the 12 subcommittees, you know, um, right. budgeting as you had to in, in your time in Columbia. But but I've, I've heard Republicans say, and this is a tough question, probably unfair to you, but I think you're uh, you're, you're the only person we can ask in an official capacity. The Republicans pol- seem to be unwilling to put Social Security, Medicare, or defense on the table. And I'm of the opinion if we're going to seriously deal with the debt, we've got to at least consider that. They have to be on the table. I'm not saying cut benefits. I'm not saying change qualification ages. I, I don't know what the answer is, Russell. But, it, but if we are serious about fiscal restraint and discipline, we have to engage some of those programs that Republicans refuse to accept as reality because it makes running for re-election a lot more difficult. What say you? Well, I think the, the speaker was clear as well, and then that the defense could be. You know, you talk about some of the money that we appropriate to green uh, things and, and kind of some of this woke uh, 
you know, funds that are attributable to that. So I think those are certainly on the table. Um, look, I mean, I think right now things are very um, nebulous to the American people, even to, to us, because there's not a framework. You know, these, these talks are early. But I'll tell you, for the American people, we went from having, you know, President Biden said that he was not going to deal with House Republicans. He wanted a clean debt ceiling increase, and that is it. Um, and then this past week, he had a meeting with Kevin McCarthy. I mean, that's a big change of tune in just a couple of weeks. Um, and it sounds like um, the meeting was relatively productive. I don't think that they got into the weeds too, too much. But, you know, f- for, for House Republicans, I think the American people elected us to, to get our fiscal house in order. Uh, this is going to be, in, in my opinion, like fixing anything else. It's going to be a very long game. I don't think that you're going to fix it overnight or solve it overnight. But I think we're on the right path to doing some some good stuff here because, you know, you're already seeing a change in tune in this administration. So I'm optimistic, but I'm also watching very closely on what is what is going on and how that's going to impact the American people in this district. Good deal. Thank you, Russell. Appreciate you joining us. And we will talk hopefully two weeks from this Friday. Absolutely. Y'all have a wonderful weekend. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Congressman Russell Fry, 843 Six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Do we have another call, Ref? Okay, we don't have a call. Um, call in and opine on whatever you choose to opine upon. I will say this: um, we, we've got to get to a place in America where politicians aren't nervous about answering that question, and and the American people don't punish a politician who honestly answers that question. That is a great dilemma in American politics today. That is not a partisan issue. I mean, we, we can we can debate, you know, um, I mean, I can hear Jeff saying, well, I mean, you're talking about Hunter Biden. What about Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump? And, you know, I mean, I, I get that. I understand that. That That is a that is a viable debate. Now, I don't think there's anything about Kushner or Ivanka that lead me to believe they were a degenerate depending on or their life were full of prostitutes and drugs. I mean, you know, that that's scary to know that somebody had access to someone in power and influence over that person to some degree. I mean, Joe Biden has said Hunter Biden was the smartest guy he knew. I mean, that's, that's not... He that, did say it. <laughs> Joe Biden has said, and I get loyal to the family and loving your kid and all that good stuff, but but Joe Biden has said, as president of the United States, he's the smartest guy I know. Well, the smartest guy he knows has a laptop. And on that laptop, we believe, is incriminating information. And if it's not incriminating information... It leads me to believe this guy ain't the smartest. If Joe, if if Hunter Biden is the smartest guy, Joe Biden knows Joe Biden is hanging around the wrong crowd. <laughs> Those aren't the kind of people we need making decisions on America's behalf and best interests. And Joe Hunter Biden, and I'll say it, he's a degenerate whose life consisted largely of prostitutes and drugs, and he was living in a home where top secret, confidential classified information was kept if that doesn't make any american nervous then we're just not anywhere near as serious as we need to be to take on debt if we can't take that on then we certainly can't take on the issue of debt i want to hold on to that until we get back because i think that is a very profound non-answer that russell gave to my question back in a minute eight four three six six one zero nine three seven takes mondays to make fridays i want to get back to russell's non-answer and i get it I mean, I understand not answering the question because it's political suicide and it shouldn't be. (laughs) Conservative voters and politicians should agree that something has to be done with the way we're spending money. 
And the only way to seriously address our deficit is to deal with Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. I mean, the interest on debt is what it is. I mean, we've borrowed the money. we got to service the debt. We have no, no, no choice but to do that if we're going to stay in good standing and be good at our word, that we pay our bills, we, uh, we pay our debts. Um, but when you look at defense spending, which has historically been a place Republicans refuse to cut, when you look at entitlements, the political suicide associated with that, the nation has to grow up. And politicians have to be willing to say everything has to be on the table and voters have to be mature enough to say, of course they do. But if a politician is nervous to say that we've got to address Social Security and Medicare, and I know it, but I can't say it because, you know, the the, the folks that are drawing Social Security and, and Medicare, that the counter argument, I hear people now say, well, I didn't screw it up. I mean, I didn't make the deal. You know, they made the deal with me. I don't have the authority to make a deal on behalf of Social Security or, or Medicare. Why should I be punished or penalized? Of course, I'm voted against the guy that says he's going to break the deal the government made with me. The one thing that I think we all have an obligation, responsibility to is leave the country better than we found it. And in many, many ways, we have and will. Uh, there, there, there are more treatments and medications and innovations and uh, technology and all these other things that have made the quality of life better today than it ever has been in the world. But we're going to leave a generation of young people debt that they had no part in incurring. None. Zero. Not a bit in this world. I mean, if we were born into a nation $31 trillion in debt, I may want to move somewhere else. I mean, if you understand finance and debt and the damage it can do to an economy and a way of life, uh, you, you, you know, do you want to be born in this nation where you can be free? And do what you want to, but it's $31 trillion in debt, and that may at one point in time uh, inhibit your freedom and your liberties and your pursuit of, of happiness. Or you want to live in this country over here where freedom is a bit moderate, it's a bit measured, it's a bit guarded, but they don't have any debt. What future looks brighter? And I just, I think we've got, it is going to be required of us to not punish politicians for giving grown up, mature, responsible answers to entitlement programs and the reform necessary to keep us on a solid path forward. And we seem to not have any interest at all in doing that. Russell will answer any question I ask except that. Rev made eye contact with me. And I kind of worded, I motioned with my voice. Mm -hmm. He won't answer it. And I get it. I mean, I understand why he won't answer it. Well, because then you're into politics you're, and it will be used against him. Well, I mean, you, you'll run, right? you'll run, and uh, I mean, imagine how many retirees in Horry County and how many ads will be run against a congressman who's doing the right thing, the responsible thing. The only responsible thing for a congressman or a woman to do today is to say, of course, we got to deal with Social Security. Of course, we've got to deal with Medicare and Medicaid. Of course, we got to deal with defense spending. But, but both parties have been conditioned to say, I'm not goofing around with the entitlements. I mean, it's not in my political best interest. What did Kevin McCarthy say? What did Donald Trump say? What has every politician from the most liberal to the most conservative said? And they're not being honest. They know that this is unsustainable. They know that this is a crash waiting to happen, and they still refuse to give you grown-up answers because you're not ready for grown-up answers. That's one of the travesties in this. The American people want to hear what they want to hear. And it's not smart to keep going down uh, this road. 843-661-0937. Go to the phone. Anthony in North Carolina. Morning, Anthony. Morning. Hey, fellas. Uh, Ken, I know you're a politician, man. I love your shows, but it's getting a little too politic. I mean, anything that we can do until, what, next year on a vote as far as politicians? But the reason I call, Ken, 
uh, yesterday, well, the last week, you talk about back the, the school system in South Carolina. And far as I, I just want you to explain for me, for the brother, the school system is jacked up, but a lot of that had to happen whenever, as far as black kids, and you know, some of our black kids are single parents, they do wild out and, and they do cause trouble in school. But at one time, we had mostly black teachers, especially male teachers and females. So, therefore, when I went to school, somebody in my class knew uh, one of them teachers because they went to, went to church with them or they knew their parents or something. And it always made our, our class, I mean, our school less violent because you knew someone, a teacher, authority knew your parents. But nowadays, it's not that. It's, it's the opposite. Only teachers that we have now are white women, and they are the most scared of young black people as it is. So we need to go back to more male, white or black teachers and more black women teachers. But the reason I called, Ken, I was doing some research, and I noticed it's, uh, it's nine countries in, in this world, but I only know seven. Iran, Iraq, Russia, North Korea, uh, Syria, and Afghanistan. Now, you, you might ask yourself, what do all of them have in common? Two things. Uh, those are seven of the nine countries that do not do banking with the Rothschild. And those are seven of the nine countries that, for some reason, we found a reason to go to war with. So this debt thing you're talking about, we don't control the the Federal Reserve. Hey, break top of the hour. That's an interesting perspective. We'll take a break back in just a few. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. Rev, you and I debate music a lot. What does Meatloaf say? Two out of three ain't bad? Uh-huh. So we got two out of three here. Jay Jordan had a family matter of which to take care of, and I guess he'll be with us next week. Mike Rickenbaugh, Philip Lower with us, Senator and Representative, respectfully. We'll go to the phone. Before we do that, I want to say um, somebody left this on. Uh, somebody sent me a text yesterday. I talked to you a little bit about it. Mm-hmm. There is a... Um, we touched on this story a couple of days ago. There, there's a young girl named Callie Weatherford who had a little issue with her eye, went to the eye doctor, thought they may need glasses, found out she has a highly aggressive brain tumor located on her brain stem. That There's a lot of medical diagnosis here. I don't want to get into detail because I wouldn't understand it if I did. I got some uh, medical terminology and verbiage here. But they're trying to raise money for the family Friday, February 24. 11 through 7 at Hampton Lodge, 206 South McQueen Street, $10 per plate. They'll be serving chicken bog, barbecue, and all the fixings. You can dine in. You can drive through. Pickup is available. Um, delivery is available for 10 plates or more if your company would like a sign-up sheet. For, foreign, uh, for, for, uh, for more information or to make donations, you can contact. You ready? Trip more. 843-687-9289. Will Robinson, 843-468-1125. All of the money, every penny of the money will go to Callie and her family to help them negotiate um, an unimaginable, unfortunate event that I can't imagine going to bed at night knowing my five-year-old has a aggressive brain tumor on the brain stem that is causing how much anxious and 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 concern i mean uh, i don't even like to i mean you got to think about it because it's real but i don't like like thinking about it i actually got a call a couple of days i told rev about this huge gamecock family mike and philip are gamecocks i'm a gamecock huge gamecock family i reached out to a contact at the football office and i think they're going to do some real kind things for the family to try to give a little hope and joy and and, and optimism in a world that probably ain't very optimistic right now 
but their world is in disarray. Uh, the, the house payment's still due. The the rent, you know, the, the car payment is still due. The groceries still have to be bought. Yeah, you put your life on, on, on just shutdown, and she is the priority and should be, but the world keeps turning around us, and I think we can all do our part by supporting this fundraiser that will be once again Friday the 24th of February from 11 a.m. until 7 p.m., and I'm going to give those numbers again. Doesn't matter what it costs. Doesn't matter if it's $100 a plate. It's $10 per plate, but it doesn't matter. We're trying to raise money for a very, very worthy cause. Trip more, 843-687-9289. Will Robinson, 843-468-1125. I do believe that our audience has a very generous spirit and charitable heart, and I would ask you to support this family in their very desperate time. Um, do we have a call? Okay, let's go to the phone. George, West Columbia. Morning, George. You're on the air. Hey, good morning. Uh, I was calling in. I heard you say that the young people of today were had no responsibility for the national debt, but I tend to disagree with you. Every, I'm not saying Republicans haven't raised the debt some, too, but Democrats have been especially bad about it. Every time they vote for Democrats, which most of the college students probably do, they're taking part in the national debt and they have some responsibility for it. If they voted for Joe Biden and the agenda that the Democrats have now, they certainly are responsible for it. Uh, they, they voted for Joe. They voted for illegal immigration. Illegal. We spent about probably $30 billion or more a year on immigration. And since Biden took office, and when you think of all the thousands and thousands that have come into the country since then, you can imagine what we're spending on illegal immigration now when we're housing them in hotels and giving them three meals a day and money to spend and Lord knows what else. Uh, you, could probably, you could probably fund Social Security and Medicare and, uh, with the money we're spending on that, and money we spend on foreign aid to, to enemies of the country. There's a lot of ways we could cut back without hitting Social Security and Medicare. Not that it doesn't need some reform. In fact, in my opinion, I would just assume that they would phase out Medicare and Social Security and give the give the citizens the money back that they're putting into it and let them invest it themselves and take care of themselves. And I think we'll be a whole lot better off because the government is involved in way too many things. You need a marriage license to get married. You need a driver's license to drive. I mean, everywhere you turn, they're raising money and they're taxing us. Uh, double taxation in many many uh ways so that's all i've got to that's say. a lot that's you. all you got that's a lot man that's <laughs> that's a handful well, you me. gave me a, a an hour's worth of show material i mean I, I hear what he's saying about the young people voting democrat democrats spend money more willingly than the republicans i'll give you a statistic um in the biden admin well excuse me in the obama eight years and the biden two years there's about $14 trillion of debt, net debt accumulated in those, what, that's 10 years. In the Bush eight years and the Trump four years, there was about $12.7 trillion of federal debt accumulated. So for the Republicans to say, we're better stewards of your money, yeah, uh, by trillion bucks, you know, 14 to 13 trillion. And the driver of the debt is Social Security, Medicare, and defense, and, and now interest on debt. Um, when we, when some of the debt rolls off, some of the real cheap debt rolls off and, and gets refinanced at a newer and more expensive finance rate, our debt service will be north of a trillion dollars. That's interest only. We're not paying principal. I mean, it's interest only. The interest only payment on our debt 
is in excess of $1 trillion a year. Our Social Security funding will be $1 trillion a year. Our Medicare funding, $1 trillion a year. Our defense spending is about $900 billion a year. So about 80% of all money that we send to Washington is kind of sort of on autopilot. I mean, I'll let Philip and Mike address Medicaid because there's some matching they have to do that's a big uh, a big burden on the on the state budget. But but I get the argument that young people are voting for Democrats, and Democrats seem to want bigger and more expansive government. But but the Republicans have been not so good at curtailing or restraining themselves from the um, the largesse of a federal government. I give these guys credit, and I'll talk to city and county council members. Um, they do some things I don't like. They do some things I do like. But they have to tell people no because money's a finite resource. The federal government has the ability to appropriate money they don't have because the Fed will buy that debt with money they don't have, and these two guys don't operate in that realm. Philip, you want to jump in here? I mean, your ways and means. I mean, you know how hard it is to prioritize and appropriate. I think one of the most important things is, is we have a balanced budget amendment. I mean, it's in our Constitution. It keeps us from being silly. Now, we could bond. I think our bonds are down to 1% or 2% of our total income. I mean, it's, it's like nothing. Um, that That's truly what a credit card was used for, just for a quick in and out. But uh, we always pay our debts off. Uh, the, the caller had a lot of good points, though. I, I really appreciated hearing that. And, and there is some buy-in from the younger generation. There are going to be some beneficiaries of things that have been spent for, but the most part, most of this money is going just hand to mouth. I mean, these people are using it. We're not really investing them in hard assets that the young people will benefit from. That's the problem. It's just going to be spent on on daily needs for people rather than assets, interstates, you know, infrastructure that we could at least they could say, well, you know, I'm in debt, but at least I've got this. And, and Mike, in Washington, the two parties don't agree on much, but they seem to be in agreement that they'll spend money they don't have. Yeah, I think the caller's point was so well made. The Republicans don't get a pass on not a, a contributing to the debt. Um, I mean, we've seen in the General Assembly, in the Senate, in the House, there are folks that are Republicans. That doesn't mean they're fiscal conservative. Two very different things at times. And I think what's important to, to recognize is that especially under the Obama administration, and then Biden has continued that, there's a, a narrative that is kind of preached from the, the executive branch that the government can fix your problems. If we spend enough, we can fix it. And while, you know, certainly Trump had his issues and his challenges, I think what, what, what Trump and that administration tended to lean toward is that government is not the answer to all your problems. Where is the personal accountability? Like, where is you, man, you, woman, you, family, your role in that? So it's not to say, again, one is all bad in terms of um, you don't need any government. You've said it so many times before. You need roads. You need government's involvement. But if government is being asked to fix all of our problems, you're implicitly giving them a blank check. And all that means is more spending. So well said. Let's go to the phone. Someone else is there. Our next caller is Ashley in Poston's Corner. Ashley, you're on with the delegation. Good morning, fellas. Um, I, I'll I will say uh, kind of what the last caller was saying. What do you do if you find yourself in a pyramid scheme at the tail end of it? <clears throat> and for people my age, forty three and younger, people my age, we are in a pyramid scheme, but at the tail end of it, there's there's probably a chance that I'll never see Social Security ever between raising of the ages and 
it not being funded as well, what does the government do when people my age and younger just refuse to participate? And I'll take it out there. Thank you, Ashley. Appreciate that. I don't have the answer to that. I don't think you have a choice right now to participate or not. I mean, obviously, we're, we're living in a very chaotic age in American government. We live in a, um, and I've made this prediction, not to be provocative, but I, I really believe that you'll see more and more civil disobedience. I think civil disobedience will be normalized. I think people will will refuse to do what it is the government says do. Now, I'm talking about this is generational. This isn't from um, from February to June of this year. I mean, I'm talking about long-term. And and I think once, um, I mean, I read a lot of polling, and once the people lose faith in their, um, in their government, they begin to ah, be more motivated to resist whatever it is uh, the government says do. But that's kind of a macro debate uh, and less of a uh, kind of a micro. I'm going to go to Representative Love, if you don't mind, Philip. You guys don't fund Medicare. You don't fund Social Security. But there is a state pension plan that we have to fund, and it is a huge burden on, on the amount of the restrictive nature of which you can do other things because you have to commit to those commitments we've already made. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. You know, our state back in the days when the Democrats ran it, then they gave out these benefits, and these benefits packages were more than we can afford to keep paying. And, and we're okay with it, but we have a lot of debt in the pension. We're not about to go broke with it. Um, and But I think we should throw some money at it to help fight it and, and beat it back down. But we need to stop doing what we're doing. We need to get into defined benefit plans with people, let them put their money in and let them invest it and take over you know, their responsibility instead of having a government pension continue on and on down this road. I don't know why we keep kicking it. But, Philip, as a conservative Republican, what can you do in regards to some of the promises made of more liberal lawmakers before you? Well, certainly there's nothing you can do about something short of going bankrupt and saying, hey, help courts, you know, you take this over. We're not anywhere near that with our pension, but it's it's unsustainable, and we know it, and, and we've got to change it. And why we don't switch, I don't know. That's That'd be the vote I would take. Let's switch. But – I think they've worried that it would crash if they did that. And and Mike, that I mean, you, you're kind of um the new guy on the block, so to speak. But you've, um, you know, studied and tried to better understand, asked a lot of questions of people who are in the know. Um, what what can a conservative Republican such as you and Philip do to change the mindset of state government? That's a weird way to ask it, but there is a certain mindset of government. It's different than the private sector. Both of you guys in the private sector. I mean, you, you know how that works. Government works fundamentally different than that. But but what can you do to help change the mindset of government? Yeah, especially if you like regarding the unfunded pension liability, not making it worse has got to be the first thing we do. Don't compile it into to Philip's point. Let's see if there's a better way to do it. But in terms of overall spending, I think that's why the General Assembly of the 170 members in there, 46 senators, 124 state reps, we need more business owners, business people who understand how a P&L works, how a balance sheet works, how truly to make payroll. And most importantly, Ken, when we've got a year like even this year and last year, when we have excess funds, I don't know how many we're going to have, $4 billion, $5 billion, whatever our excess or our surplus money is going to be, just like we teach our children or our employees that if you keep money in your working capital account, you got a really good chance of spending it at some point. Give the money back to the taxpayers. Government's got a great way of finding ways to spend money. Give it back to the taxpayers and let them use their money. And I think you're going to find that we found over and over again with the American spirit and the South Carolina spirit, 
individuals are better with their money than the government is. Philip, a lot of this happens because Republicans can't, they, they eat themselves, they eat their own, they destroy from within. Um, we, we talked abortion and, and, you know, you couldn't say yes for an answer, not the two of you, but the party in general. Um, I, I've used this linear graph as an example. I want to get both of your takes on this. So, so on one end is the most libertarian-leaning Republican imaginable. I mean, they want to drown government in a bathtub. They're borderline anarchist. I can get there. I mean, I'll be honest with you. At times in my life, I kind of get over there, and I know I know you do as well, Philip. But but there, there's a responsibility the party has to kind of find consensus and build a governing agenda. How hard is that today as a Republican? I think the larger the Republicans are in the state, the percentage of, of uh, legislators that are Republican, you're going to have a larger group at the left and the right end of the spectrum. Uh, if it's a bell-shaped curve, you know, you're going to have people uh, in, in around Charleston that are going to be your real moderate Republicans. You're going to have some people in the upstate that are going to be closer to the libertarian wing. And, and so, you know, they'll make some noise on both ends. And policy somewhere generally sets where about 80 to 90 percent of the Republican caucus can get around a concept and an idea and support it. And that's kind of how we use our caucus to move major bills forward for us. And, and Mike, it's not a monarch or a dictatorship. I mean, there has to be some resolve within to, as Philip said, and, and uh, if you're a Republican and a conservative Republican in particular, and you utter the word compromise, it makes you nervous. I mean, it really does. I've been there, done that. I mean, I know as, a, as somebody running for office and I say the word compromise, I'm like, wow, should I have said that or not? But it is necessary to, to build some sort of consensus and governing agenda. It is. And, and that adage that we've all heard about don't let perfect get in the way of good is an adage that is, is tough for a lawmaker who oftentimes they come from their own district or their own environment where they lead the show, whether that be in their own business or their own entity there. And they get to, to a body of 46 or 124 and they realize they can't have it just their way. So when you, you made, brought up such great examples with the abortion bill or, you know, finally the school choice bill that we just finally voted on this year that we didn't get out last year. So we got it out this year. But there were those that said, I want it my way and, and not maybe I want it all my way. And you realize you're not on an island. You can't make it work that way. That's why civil discourse. I teach. I talk to a lot of young people telling and explaining to these young people the the importance of civil discourse, of understanding to listen much more than you talk to realize that you don't get to make all the decisions yourself. It's not a monarchy there. It's going to be so important for the next generation who's going to need to work together. Well, explain. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few minutes. And then there was one. <laughs> <laughs> scared him off. Yeah, Philip Lowe had no. to leave. He had a, um, Philip runs a business and he, he has to go to work. He has to go do his job, believe it or not. Citizen legislator personified is that um we can all relate to that as a former politician who ran a business mike's politician runs a business philip politician runs a business. it gets complicated it gets very complicated in trying to delegate and prioritize your time a lot of balancing going on i'll get a call in my senate office and uh, i was just checking to see uh, what's the price on a rear end differential and i was like okay <laughs> wrong phone number there, <laughs> like, okay. there, there you go. yeah i remember somebody called lieutenant governor's office one day said that 16-foot flatbed you put on my truck in 2007 is <laughs> leaking all bad. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, bring it up here, and we'll get somebody on um, on staff to work on it. Mike, you mentioned um, education a second ago. We had a couple of callers earlier this week complain um, respectfully about our, our inability to do what it seems Florida and Ron DeSantis are able to do. And I'm talking about 
um, parental awareness and involvement and empowerment. Where, where are you and where do you think we are as a state on parents being empowered about what sorts of teachers, what sorts of curriculum? Is that a fair criticism for parents to say, I want to know more about my child's education? And I think not only is it a fair criticism, I think it's an imperative right now. There is such a, a liberal, woke shift going on in education, both higher education and even in K through 12 in many school districts, uh, that parents, if they're not involved, they're going to wake up and realize that their kids have been taught things that they have no business being taught, things that are absolutely not age appropriate. Uh, what I'd like to say, there's a way to, to stick a finger in the dike, so to speak, and, and stop the, the water from coming through the, the dam. I'm glad we, we passed the school choice bill, the parental choice bill this past week. It is in no way meant to, to hurt public schools. I went every day of my life to public schools and I wouldn't have traded. It was a great experience. My dad is a public school teacher, but the public schools of today are very different than they were years ago. So parents should have the choice to decide what's best for their children. And if that's the public school, then so be it. If that's a Christian school, so be it. And if they've paid the tax dollars into the system, they should have that parental choice. So we were able to finally pass that out yesterday, as a matter of fact, over into the House. Is it fair to say that a lot of what DeSantis did is because he could? The the, the governor of Florida is a more, I mean, we talk about the, the, the weak office that is the South Carolina governorship. Um, DeSantis has a little more authority down, down there. But what do you feel, I guess what I'm asking is, as a member of the South Carolina State Senate, what is your obligation to work with the chief executive officer, the governor of our state? Yeah, great question. When the governor did his state of the state address this pa this past week, a week before this last, uh, you know, the General Assembly, we were all there, and uh, he made a lot of commitments. When you're in the, the system, as we as I am now and you were then, you realize that he can espouse a lot of things and he can suggest a lot of things, but it's going to have to be with the cooperation and collaboration of the General Assembly. So. I love the fact that the governor lays out an agenda of what's important to him. And ultimately he can sign a bill or he can veto a bill and he can apply public pressure, but we are a general assembly run state. So the, the constant meetings, and I was real honored that the governor, he had, he had created a, a task force of 10 of us for judicial reform and bond reform. And he selected me on that just because I've been very vocal about the need for judicial reform. And, and in that meeting with the speaker of the house and the, the majority leader, we had an opportunity to really talk about, will the governor support it publicly? Because he does have a very big pulpit, very big microphone, and he can apply pressure where it needs to be applied, but we've got to have the courage to make the right laws. Rev, do you have a call? Let's go to the phone. Daphne and Dylan, you are on with Senator Rickenbaugh. Good morning, Senator Rickenbaugh. Good morning. Uh, one of my passions is our, our children being targeted by the radical left to do and believe things that are perverted and no one seems to be able to protect them. When our school system, and they targeted the children very early on, and now they've gone to the extreme where they can show them pornography, teach them how to do sexual acts. And uh, I recently learned about the clinic in Charleston which I was glad the lady called after I did, who uh, said that the four- and the five-year-olds were being uh, the sex change enacted in a clinic in Charleston. And I was pleased that the legislators 
were going to defund any state monies going to that. So those young, vulnerable, innocent children are the ones that are being targeted. Also, uh, I heard Ken's thing about Social Security and whatnot. Don't fall into the trap that the Democrats are setting for you because Schumer and all the rest of the Washington cabal are hollering. They're going to cut out your Medicare and your Social Security. The response to that should be, no, what we want to do is stop Joe and the Democrats from bringing in 4 million illegals, handing them an EBT card, a Medicaid card, and a cell phone, giving them free housing, and giving them better treatment than our citizens who have worked all their lives. That should be the response. Thank you, Daphne. Appreciate that. Mike, I'll let you address her point about um, the local issue, and then I'll kind of... um uh, we're, I get what Daphne's saying about don't take don't don't take debate don't fall into the trap. It's not a trap. We we got to deal with Social Security and Medicare. We got to reform that in some way, shape, or form. And it's not as simple as people are living much longer, but it kind of is as simple as people are living uh, much longer. And the expense incurred and the longevity of life is unsustainable. It's not that simple, but that's the sound bite. Mike, I'll, I'll defer to you on the other. Yeah, Daphne, thank you for calling, and it. This is almost, as I see it, Daphne, and your point's so well made. It's a twofold approach. Uh, it, it's going to take people being engaged and involved, people like you, groups like Moms for Liberty, Angela Cooper, who's locally the, the chapter chair, and then all those wonderful women and men in Moms for Liberty who are fighting for the, the, the correct conservative school board seats and school administrators um, to speak up and have a voice be heard. But parents also need to speak up. Parents need to, to look at what their kids are being taught, what's coming home in the books, having those conversations at dinner. I know it sounds old Norman Rockwell, but you know, having dinners with your families and your kids to hear what's going on at school. Tell me what you learned today. Tell me what your teacher's saying. Tell me what's going on. Um, the second part of it is in addition to being an, an informed and engaged parent and in, in, in community activist um, like you and Moms for Liberty, uh, and I don't want to over-spiritualize it, but Daphne, we also need to pray this is a spiritual battle. And if you spend any time in the Bible, and I don't spend nearly enough, but those who do realize that there are battles that are fought in the heavens that before they even are manifested in the earth, there is a battle over our young people. It's a perversion to teach them ways to distract them from the truth. And if we pray for, for transparency and for revelation and for God's wisdom to, and for us to then have the courage to make the right moves, to remove the school board that need to be to remove the administrators, to remove the teachers, like to essentially to metaphorically to go to war when necessary to fight for our kids. We can have God's wisdom to do it. But man, David didn't go fight Goliath without going to God first and being like, God, he's an enemy of yours. This is an enemy of our people and an enemy of our young people. Mike, let me ask you this. So, so you have a, uh, a, a worldview, you have a biblical worldview. How do you deal personally with those who don't? Uh, in my time, I don't have to do it now. I mean, I don't. I, 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 you know, I'm an opinion monster. I give opinions. People have opinions of my opinions, and we debate those. But, but you have a responsibility to the state of South Carolina's member of his General Assembly. You have a biblical worldview. Some South Carolinians don't have that biblical worldview. 
how do you address the contrast, the yeah. difference in your belief system and theirs? Yeah, you've asked a lot of good questions over your years on the show, Ken. That's probably one of the, the, the most in-depth and involved and important question because you're exactly right. There's 170 legislators, and I have 46, 45 other senators within our 46-member body. And I, not all of us have the same faith or the same degree of faith. That's where I've realized you can't out-logic someone in this situation. You can't outsmart them. You can't have a, a, a better oratorical argument when you go to the well. Yes, you have to know your facts. You have to study. You have to know the, the nuance of a bill. Um, but I firmly believe that the only possible way to be effective in moving forward when there is a spiritual battle is through prayer, is through saying, God, like this is your battle to fight. Like even, again, I, I going back into the best reference I know, even in biblical terms, even when Saul lost his mind and was trying to kill David, the man after God's own heart, David, who had an opportunity to kill Saul, didn't take his life. He's like, no, God, you put him here. Don't know why, but you put him here for a reason. And that's seen time and time again, biblically, that for whatever the reason, when these people are in leadership, even biblical times, God has them there for a reason and he'll use them. I got to pray the same thing. God, help me figure out how to work with this senator, with this legislator, with this department head to accomplish your goals and give me the wisdom to say the right things, to have the spirit of cooperation. Because on my own, I can't do it. Your point's so well made. Well, well explained. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. 843-661-0937. Yours truly and Senator Mike Rickenbaugh having a very philosophical and in-depth conversation about, and it, and it really matters, guys. I mean, when you make a political decision, I mean, there's kind of a combination of your 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 genetic hardwiring in compliance with your value system. And, and I've always said, my genetic hardwiring says X, but my, my biblical worldview says Y. How do I, do I end up at Y or do I end up in X or how do I self-compromise or self-introspectively evaluate what is the right and sincere thing to do? Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Carol and Marion, you're on with Senator Rickenbaugh. Good morning, gentlemen. Um, I want to touch upon the education aspect of this conversation. Um, I taught in Timmonsville about 15 years ago. It was just for one year. It was my first year of teaching, but I came from New Jersey and their education system. And while I was teaching, I looked at a, um, I compared the standards for New Jersey uh, elementary school students compared to second grade in South Carolina. And I discovered that the second grade standards in South Carolina were more on par with fourth grade New Jersey standards. Now, it's all well and good to want to have high standards, but those standards are way too high for the students of South Carolina. And people don't want to hear, we need to lower the standards, but we need to lower the standards. So that those children, so we can stop having such high dropout rates. If a child feels like they can't reach those standards, they're going to just give up. But if they're just high enough that they're challenging, but they're attainable, they'll keep persisting. Thank you, Carol. Appreciate that. Mike, I'll let you chew on that for a second. Carol, I guess uh, to make sure I understand your question, are you kind of saying like if you if you set the bar too high they'll be disincentivized or demotivated to try to attain the bar yes okay 
you know, I'm not an educator, but I can certainly understand that if, if as a fourth grader, I'm expected to, to, to perform at a seventh grade level and there's very little chance um, to get there unless I'm exceptional or a second grader to a fifth grade level, whatever the example might be, I can certainly appreciate how a stretch goal is great, but an unattainable goal does nothing but disincentivize. I Who wouldn't gets disagree. to decide what the level of performance or proficiency a seventh grader should attain? Yeah, is that school board, Carol? Do you know, is that a, a superintendent? Like, who makes those decisions? I am not sure. I do know that, um, I know in Marion County, my, my children go to, uh, well, my youngest goes to Marion County Public Schools. My oldest two go to a Christian school. Um, he, my youngest is in kindergarten and his teacher who I don't think the teachers have any say about it. Teacher has said that the kindergartners in general education, um, they don't like that. Um, the kindergartners don't really have any playtime. It's all, you know, um, strict, um, oh, I can't think of the word, um, disciplined and uh, academic. And they're learning stuff like vertices in math. Kindergartners, five-year-olds are learning about vertices. And that's not something that I learned, and I know this is <laughs> uh, years and years ago, but that's not something I learned until middle school. And they're teaching it to kindergartners. So I know it's not the teachers that um, come up with these standards. It's, And I'm not sure it's the school board either. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Thank, thank you, Carl. I, I want to jump in here. I'm not, and, and I'll ask it another way. I'll, I'll be a radio show host for a second. Is it encouraging or not that we're having some pretty controversial discussions about public education? Yeah, I think it's the, the few things would be more appropriate to have robust, controversial conversations about. It's our our kids. It's a there's a battle over our kids, and if we don't figure this out now, we're going to raise a generation that has lost their way even more than we're seeing right now. Uh, I, I, I love Carol's question. I, I'm not sure if, if, if Dr. O'Balley or Dr. Vincent down in Hannah Pamplico or Alana Prosser or, or Dr. Hicks and any of the four superintendents of uh, Florence school districts are listed in. I'd love for one, maybe one of them to either call in or text me because I am quite curious to Carol's point, who makes the decision as far as where the, the benchmark is set? Because um, you want kids to strive to succeed at the highest degree possible you want a kid to maximize their potential but but if you give them goals or objectives that are unattainable it could de-incentivize or, or, or de- i mean it could demoralize a kid in a family yeah and actually dr o'malley he just he texted me and he said that that i guess we he said you i presume that would mean the general assembly we set the curriculum i, I presume that's either the general assemblies maybe the education committees or could it be the superintendent of education um which would have been Molly Spearman or Ellen, Ellen Weaver. Yep. So that's a good question, Karen. I could certainly see your point uh, yep. that we need to be reasonable. And and we, we may try to get Rich to come on here and, and address some of this concern specifically. Uh, the one thing I found about Dr. O'Malley, uh, he's not afraid of controversial questions in education, and I think we all benefit from that reality. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Brent in Florence. You're on with Senator Rickenbaugh. Hey, Mike. How are you? It's Brent Tiller. Hey, everybody. Hey, uh, got a question. I asked the, the guys last week some huge disruptors with school choice, but how does school choice um, increase participation to the parents that aren't participating now? Because, you know, my work, my wife works in public education. You're, we've got the ear, and we're 
you know, we mentor some people in the school district. How does school choice, how does that affect those, those parents that don't participate now, which is the problem? These kids aren't going to school. You know, we've got so many, they're falling behind. And if, if you look at their records, it's because they attend school one or two days a week. They're not participating. The parents aren't helping. So I, I see the I, I see the good and the bad with school choice. I thought last week, you know, what happens to the, the, the private school that's Christian that makes you sign a clause or a creed that you're going to be a believer? And they, are they going to not, they, are y'all going to allow them to turn that child away because their parents are not of the Christian faith that that school deems to be their guiding model, you know, because Christian education, I went to a Christian school a few years. It's based on Christian faith. So you have to make an A in, 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 in your, in your Christian classes. So those two things, how does school choice help participation? And those ones aren't participating now. And then what's the fallback to some of the, what could be the fallback? You know, I've asked Jay, you know, we're friends. What, you know, if, if you send money to a private school, when does the state step in and say, you have to do this? Are all teachers going to, have to be certified now? Because I hear that a lot. A lot of teachers, you know, aren't ha- don't have to have certain certifications in private school. But you know, Dr. Malley wants every teacher certified. Maybe have to be in Forest One. So those are some of my questions about school choice. Thank you, Brent. Appreciate it. You got about a minute, Mike. Yeah, great question. First of all, is real quick, um, Superintendent or O'Malley just uh, texted in again. He said, "Is the State Board of Education approved?" To the earlier point, State Board of Education approves the curriculum in the standards, and then the state funds the books to teach the curriculum, that the, the local superintendents or the local school districts don't have a choice. So in answer to that question, it would be the State Board of Education sets the curriculum or approves the curriculum and the standards, and then the state general assembly, we would fund the books to, to achieve that curriculum. In answer to your question, uh, yeah, that's, that's what Rich says. In answer to uh, your question, Brent, so the school choice bill that we passed out, it's called ESA, Educational Savings Account. And what that allows parents to do who, theoretically, you and your wife, you've paid into the system, you're at either 100, 200, 300, or 400% of the poverty level is the first group. You're able to take the funds that you have paid into the system and then choose to say, I want my child to have a Christian education. Now, you don't get to tell the school, of the let's say a Christian school, well, you have a Christian curriculum. You want our kids to go to chapel. I refuse for my child to go to hold, chapel. Hold on that for a second. Can you yeah. hang around one more segment? Sure, sure. Okay, hard break, yep. top of the hour. Can't float this. Back. Okay, Mike, I got to warn you. This happens every morning at 9 o'clock. You're here only on Fridays, and you're normally gone by now. Mike Rickenbaugh, Senator Rickenbaugh, has agreed to stay with us for a bit longer because I didn't want him to rush that answer. That's a serious topic. I didn't want to have to rush an answer, and we're trying to get un- in under the wire. But at nine, I drink a Celsius. <laughs> Watch and, out. and a Celsius Uh-oh. is a, I don't know any other way to say it. It's a healthy energy drink. And it's healthy and it's energetic. So Rev <laughs>, laughs at me because I go off the charts. You might start talking yeah. a little yeah, faster. I may, it, just um, forgive the jumping jacks and the push-ups and sit-ups oh, and all these see. other Ken's sorts of be, things. Ken's looking like a spider monkey on yeah, crack it's over a, here. It's <laughs> the Arctic vibe Celsius today. And um, it is, it's, the, it's the absolute healthiest energy drink on the market today and it's marketed by our good friends and partners at pepsi uh florence so um if i get a little out of control forgive me thanks to rich o'malley for calling in and going on speakerphone with mike and i to explain um some of his criticism and complaint about the way we run the education system in south carolina mike and i were talking a second ago about brent's question and comments and and i i'm i'm, I'm gonna be radio show host for a second respect the senator here but but he's not bothered by this there is a there is a belief out there amongst public educators that moms are trying to convince people like you, Senator Rickenbaugh, 
that schools have become so radicalized and left-leaning and gender mutilation and sex change and, uh, you know, um, uh, political orientation debates and whatnot, that they can figure out a way to get that money in their pockets so they can go to a private school and not have to pony up for the the amount. And, I mean, you're nodding your head. I mean, the human condition is the human condition. It's been around since the beginning of time. What did Eve do? <laughs> I mean, and then Adam said, well, I guess I'm with her, you know. Uh, so so, so the, the, the human condition ain't a new phenomenon. It's always been there. And self-preservation is a priority of all of ours. I mean, it, it really and truly is. So when we have these debates, these complicated matters before, the public, Rich O'Malley doesn't have all the answers. Mike Rickenbaugh doesn't have all the answers. I certainly don't have all the answers. Brent doesn't have all the answers. But the more honest, serious conversations we have, the better the the the, the, the answers become. Is that fair? It, it is fair. And I, you know, you don't need any more accolades, especially when you're on your Celsius Arctic vibe. <laughs> I'll fight but, you, Mike Rickenbaugh. <laughs> like a spider monkey on crack, baby. <laughs> but what you and, and Dave do here means so much. It creates the avenue for these conversations. And these are important conversations. These conversations shouldn't be just held in the General Assembly or in living rooms. It needs to be held at a larger forum. So, Brent, to your question, and I'm, I'm glad we were able to take this up again, and I'll stay. Yeah, I told you this before, Ken. People calling in is the greatest thing that can happen it because it creates the dialogue. I'll stay all day for that matter um, until Sharice tells me i got to come home. But I, ain't, <laughs> I ain't. I'm leaving it to you. <laughs> um, but you know, what I hear time and time again from constituents um, that, that are an advocate of parental choice, they say, I've paid into the system. I pay my taxes. I work hard. There was a time when I had confidence in public schools, and some many do. Some still do. Most still do. Again, I went every day of my life to public schools. But there are those that say, my fifth grader came home and was explained to them by their teacher what masturbation is. Or this teacher told my third grader to call this other student they or them. Now, you can agree, you can disagree, but if you don't want ideological doctrine taught to your kids, but you've paid into the system, parents often over and over take the position, I should have the right to say, I want the dollars that I've spent to follow my child to a school that I do have confidence in. Nobody gets to teach my child about masturbation until I feel they're ready, or what pornography is, or what gender pronouns is, or what Fill in the blank. What in some may call it radical. I call it radical left wokeism. Others would say it's just the new culture. We're enlightened now. Doesn't matter where you fall on it. They're your kids. And I don't think the government or a teacher or a school administration gets to say, no, we think your third grader should understand what masturbation is because we deem appropriate. That's what my constituents say. Fight for that. I'm going to fight for it. Now, it's not a perfect system. And the, the bill, Brent, to your point, the ESA bill that we passed out is in no way a perfect system. It takes up to about 15,000 families who are up to 400% of the poverty level. So it starts with the the first group is the first group that can least afford it. And it gives them an allocation of $6,000 a year. Many will say $6,000 a year isn't nearly enough to go to most private schools. And in most cases, you're right. So then it comes down to can families prioritize their budgets to make up the difference? Will schools help make that up? Will there be any private charitable organizations? Big conversation to be had, but it's the first step to allowing parents to say, you know, I want something different for my child. 
And I believe it was you, Brad, or someone else who brought up about on the Christian school, for instance. What if you want to send your child to a Christian school, but they don't believe in that faith and they don't want to go to chapel and they don't want to pray? Well, that's your right to say, my child's not going to do that thing, but then don't send your kid to that school because that's that school's curriculum. Um, It's advertised. It's known. It's widely displayed what their curriculum is. So there's going to be some tension and, and sometimes we get better. Oftentimes, I would say most times we as people get better in the tension, in those conversations of saying, here's what I think's best, but here's what you think's best. Well, explain. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Angela in Pamplico, you're on with Senator Rickenbaugh. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Um, okay. So a few things. Um, parental involvement. So somebody called and, you know, was saying, how do we get parents, you know, how do we get parents involved that aren't involved now just because of school choice? We don't. That's not what school choice is about. And I think it's getting lost. Um, the way we get school choice, I mean, the way we get parents involved with school choice and without school choice is through community. We've got to come together as a community and we've got to inspire parents, um, our neighbors, our family, everybody. We've got to inspire each other to get involved. And we do that through community, coming together and really building those relationships with each other. Cross community lines, not just, you know, this neighborhood and that neighborhood, but as a whole, as a town, as a county, we've got to all come together and inspire each other and, you know, look after each other's kids like we did when I was growing up. You know, the neighborhood took care of all kids. It wasn't just, that's my kid, and you don't, you know, tell them what to do. Um, that's how we get parental involvement, no matter what the the school choice issue is. Um and then second of all, I think one thing that's getting lost with the school choice is this isn't a school choice necessarily between public school versus private school versus, versus homeschool versus whatever else. It also is school choice between public schools. If you don't want your child to go to private school, don't send them to private school because there are a lot of private schools here lately. I'm finding that are indoctrinating our children too. Um, so private school is not the answer to everything. But if if I live in the West Florence side of town and I want my child to go to South Florence because, you know, maybe athletics, because there might be a class that South Florence offers that West Florence Sutton, you know, vice versa, then I have that choice. Thank you, Angela. Appreciate that. Well, and, and, I, and I believe this, Mike, and, and this I'll, I'll use my personal example. I got a good friend of mine, as big a Clemson fan as you'd ever meet in your life. Love the Tigers, grew up a Tiger, grandfather was a Tiger, kids go to Clemson games. The son wanted to be a business person. They had to make a decision that the Dartmoor School of Business was one of the best rated business schools in America. And I watched that family struggle with that decision. But they made that decision based on what? Choice, personal choice. They still wear Ipte clothes. They still love the Tigers, but they made a decision that they felt was in that kid's best interest to put him in a better than average business school. Families in public education deserve that sort of 
right to make a decision. Is that fair? I, I fully agree. And, and Angela, I really appreciate you calling in and all you do for Moms for Liberty. But I like your last point is exactly. It's not just from public school to private school. Um, there can be a lot of other considerations. Um, yeah, athletics is a big one. I was not a great athlete. I loved sports, and uh, but I was not a great athlete. I wouldn't even have been on the team at South or West or Wilson. Um, I'd like to think I could have at least been a part of a team of Hannah Pamplico or Johnsonville because there's a much smaller pool of players. Now they've got great athletics. Um, but when you got 60 in a graduating class versus 360, you got a much better chance of being on a team. But you learn a lot from being on a team, from sports, from practices, um, about what it's like to not give up even when you're tired. So I have no doubt that my mom or my dad would have figured out a way to try to get me to a, a Red Raider or a Golden Flashes or a school like that because I couldn't have been a Tiger or a Bruin or a Knight. A lot of considerations. It's about parental choice to choose what's the best for your kids. Well, and, and when you look at the top down, I mean, I think conservatives in general believe the old Jefferson philosophy uh, best government's government closest to the people. I've heard Dr. O'Malley express his concern about South Carolina in particular being a, a kind of a top-down system. In other words, the curriculum is set at the state level. The standards are state set at the state level. Um, local autonomy is different in South Carolina than it is from some of the other states that perform above average. Um, but, but then the problem becomes, Mike, and I'll get your take on this, let's for argument's sake say that we disband the Department of Education in South Carolina that the superintendent of education is somewhat neutered in their ability to work with the board of education to suggest, not suggest, demand uh, or command curriculum and, and standards. All of a sudden, that responsibility is in the hand of a local school board, local, local superintendent, local principal. How do we hold them accountable? But because you've got a lot more organizations. I mean, in other words, if, 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 the, standards are not, if the standards aren't met and the curriculum is, is invalid or, or as it not, should not be, you know exactly where to go look now. The superintendent of education, the board of education, and, this, and the general assembly. Yeah. All of a sudden, we allow that responsibility to be taken on at the local level, but there has to be some accountability at the local level. That's a complicated process. In theory, it makes a lot of sense. You pass the right to, to standard and curriculum to the local level, but what if the local level isn't up to the, to the task? Then we've got this readdressing that must take place. You know, I remember in, uh, when I watched Talladega Nights, uh, Cal Naughton, uh, Ricky Bobby's best friend, says he's got a pretzel in his head. That's a pretzel in the head kind of question right there because getting that right, th there's very little margin for error. You're talking about kids' lives. It would almost be interesting. I don't want to put people out there, but to have Dr. O'Malley and, and Dr. Neil Vincent from Hannah Pamplico and, and Alana Prosser from, Johnson, Hannah, or from Johnsonville and and, and Dr. Hickson from Lake City to, to come on or to call in and, and talk about as the four superintendents of Florence County Schools or Florence School Districts, how could we do that? How, what would the school boards and what would the superintendents agree to to make sure that no no child in, one, in any particular district falls behind? Because I don't know the answer to that. If it's, if it's truly home rule and each district gets to decide how do you ensure standards are being met? Because some could be great and some could be not so great. Sure, you got competent people in government. You got incompetent people in government, just right. as in the private sector. That's exactly it's no different right. than the private sector. Do we have a call, Ref? Let's go to the phone. Bill and Sumter, listening to WDXY. You are on with Senator Rickenbaugh. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Hey, so Ken, I'm going to kind of piggyback off of what you just said. You kind of stole a little of my thunder. Um, my question is: as my wife and I are dual income and we have no children, um, so my my question is: is how is there any possible way? 
other than what we already do through charities, is there any possible way that, like, I could say allocate this money out of my taxes, you know, that, that goes to the school system, you know, instead of instead of sending it to this great big pool, send it to X, Y, and Z districts or, or what there may be, or, you know, is there any possible way that that could be, like, I don't know, maybe suggested or I, I don't know that that could be implemented or, or is that going to be too, too Herculean of a effort? Bill, that's a, a great idea. Um, there's a, an amendment, actually a new bill coming up. It's going to be called PACE. And uh, Senator Tom Davis out of Buford County is a big proponent of the, the PACE amendment or the PACE bill. And what PACE would do, it, it would allow someone exactly like you, who maybe doesn't have kids or the kids are already grown, who want to involve themselves as, as from a standpoint of financial involvement in schools um, to make it better, but they also want the benefit from it. So what PACE would allow you to do as a private individual or private business you would have a scholarship organization in your area. You would give them, fill, uh, give an example, $5,000 that they could use for scholarships for families to send their children to other schools, whether it be other private schools or other public schools. And then what you would be able to do, you as the giver, the contributor would receive a tax credit, a state income tax credit for that amount. That's not a deduction. That's an actual dollar for dollar credit. So the motivation for you would be you get a tax credit, which would be phenomenal, but then you also are allowing other students who may need the means to use those dollars um, to have a school of their choice. That's a very interesting answer. Th thank you. Appreciate the call there. I don't have, no, we don't have another call, do we? Uh, um, and we're rolling here. I mean, you know, and, and once again, Mike normally leaves at nine and Philip and Jay are normally here, but um, this topic is very near and dear to people. So, and I'll tell you the reason it's going to be a central issue in the next two years of American politics if Ron DeSantis decides to run for president, DeSantis is going to make as one of his, uh, you know, priorities, or uh, he will list his accomplishments of getting reelected in a swing state by an overwhelming margin. I mean, that, that will be his claim to fame, so to speak. I'm electable. I'm more electable than anybody because Florida's not competitive anymore. We, we did some cool things there. But he's become known as the education governor. Um, parental empowerment, parental awareness. Um, if a parent... If a teacher is teaching um, a certain curriculum or, 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 or a, has an agenda other than, you know, the, the kid's best interests, DeSantis is going to root that out at the executive level. Um, and, and education will be a focal point in the next presidential election. I don't think Mike Rickenbaugh, no, I don't. I don't want education to be federalized. I mean, I certainly <laughs> don't have any interest in that. And, and, I, and I like the idea of... You know, the, the, the local school board, the local superintendent, the, the, the local parents being empowered as to what sort of curriculum and standard their kids have to attain. But if, if, if you're going to ask Senator Rickenbaugh to fund education at the level that many are requesting it, who's held accountable? And how do we hold that person accountable when we find out a school has not met the standard, has gotten a little loose and fast with the curriculum? What do we do? Bring them to the Senate? and ask them to appear before a subcommittee? You see where I'm headed? Yeah. A lot of these things are sound body in nature. And then Mike's finding this out. He already knew this, but he's really living it now. There are a lot of things that run through your head that make a lot of sense until you accept the fact that you're a part of a, a political body that has a lot of different perspectives and views. Yeah, I think that's one reason why attending school board meetings, even if you can't attend in person, watching them online and having input is perhaps one of the most critical aspects that a, a family or a parent or even a, a, a an adult who doesn't have children can do. Because whether you have kids or not, or whether your kids are grown, 
the children that are being educated and raised in your community are going to set the tone and the foundation for your workforce, for your consumer base, for your crime, your lack thereof, your first responders. We all are going to need them. So being engaged and informed at this level is critical. It's not to say the city council's not or the county council or the general assembly, but please don't forget the school board and the importance of it. These kind of conversations have got to happen. They need to continue. Well, well explained. I appreciate you hanging around for an extra segment. Always. Rev, he gets overtime pay this week. Okay. <laughs> not only did he stay longer, I'm drinking Celsius. He's a little bit nervous of the way I'm jumping around. Hey, get get him one here. of those Celsius. Yeah, yeah. There's you your extra bit. He won't drive home. He'll run home. Every, everybody, here. please pray for Callie. Pray for her and her family. Right. Amen. Um, for peace and strength. Hey, amen. And, and not only pray, let's do this as well. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Um, Callie Weatherford and her family are, are dealing with something none of us wish we it's inhuman. I mean, it's humanly impossible for me to even consider what the family's going through. But the little girl and her family are dealing with an aggressive brain tumor located on her five-year-old brainstem. Um, we're, we're having a benefit to try and raise money. $10 per plate, chicken bog, barbecue. Um, if you get 10 plates or more, they'll deliver. I'll give you two names and numbers, and, and, I, and I'll, I'll plead with you to please reach out to these two people and ask how you can help. Trip Moore. 843-687-9289. Will Robinson, 843-468-1125. I can't cure cancer. I have no idea what to do about a brain tumor, but I got 10 bucks, right. 20 bucks, 30 bucks, and I can help that family keep the train on the track as well as they can during this very unfortunate time. So, yeah, prayers, as Mike said, but also let's financially support this family to the best of our abilities. Take a break. Back in a few. So Rev says, do we have an Eagle song picked out? I said, well, we did Henley two weeks ago, Fry last week. So you owe Joe Walsh today. That's right. And then he said, but it's got a 47-second intro. I said, well, the 47 seconds of listening to Joe Walsh play the guitar don't sound too bad. I'm good uh, with that. Too, too bad to me. Rev's toying around with the new equipment here. Friendly reminder. The 20th of February is our tentative launch date for No Stop Lights with yours truly. Uh, I still got to get used to saying my name like that. Yeah, get used to it. What I mean, it's so like, I don't know if you ever heard Bo Jackson interviewed. It's always Bo Jackson. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> like, talk about yourself. In, 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 the, in, in the first person, I'm like, I can't do that, man. That's hard for me to do because I'm such a humble soul from such a um, oh, yes. a small town. Yes. You know that. Uh, you of, know. Course. Yeah, of course. Fake humility. Yes. The best of them. Yeah. Uh, mm. It's not that you're humble. It's can you fake humility? That's the secret success to politics. Nobody believes there's a single politician walking the planet Earth that is humble. Humble people don't ask other people for money and votes. Okay? Let's establish that. <laughs> okay. Humble people work at the soup kitchen and the Salvation Army and, and, and not-for-profits. I mean, that humility is demonstrated in how you live your lives. So when a, when a politician says, I'm just a humble servant, no, you aren't. Because if you were, you'd be at the parking lot mission. Mm -hmm. You'd be you'd be helping, you know, homeless children. You are an egotistical ass, probably. <laughs> ne next, you're going to tell me that politicians don't work tirelessly. Well, I mean, no, I mean, of course they do. Coal miners don't. Construction workers don't. Stop with that nonsense. <laughs> no, it's it's politicians that work tirelessly on behalf of the uh, of the American people. But but you got to be able to fake humility. You got to be able to make it appear that you are indeed uh, a humble soul. No, nobody asking other people for money and votes is uh, is humble to any degree. Uh, and you better be thankful that smart, able, competent people are willing to get involved 
in uh, in American politics. Kind of an interesting uh, debate. And uh, an hour and 20 minutes with Senator Rickenbaugh. Philip Lowe was with us for a while. He had to go to work. Imagine that. Real citizen legislator. If you have a U.S. congressman on the radio and he says, I got to leave and go to work. No, you don't. No, you don't. We know better than that. You may have to scurry off to some committee. It's not a budgeting committee because you don't budget anymore. You haven't done it in, you know, 16 or 17 years. But uh, but Rev really, and I want to give him a lot of credit here. Oh. Um, we're converting a, a radio studio into a podcast studio. And he's toying around with lights and he's moving equipment around. And we're adding video is what it is. So the radio, the radio studio obviously was designed and built and used for audio exclusively for radio broadcasting ever since we constructed the talk studio about three years ago that we use now and so when for we the just, humble servant right exactly and working tirelessly in that studio by the way <laughs> so we have converted it or i call it retrofitting the studio for video for television basically so we can produce video podcasts as well as audio podcasts but obviously it requires a different type of inf- infrastructure with TV lighting, camera placement, multiple camera views, monitors. We're, we're working on an issue. Again, since we're talking about behind the scenes here, we have to work with our, our mic booms because the mic booms, which hold the microphones in front of the face of whoever's talking, uh, the booms and the microphones are in the way of the camera shot. So we're having to get different mic booms that have a lower profile approach. And that that's we're, we're not there yet, but we're working on it. We're that. getting there. We're, we're heading to stardom. Dolly Parton went to a amateur talent contest when she was six or seven years old and she sang her rear end off. Um, I would say she sang her, you know, but there ain't that much voice in the world. You know, you know what I'm saying? And, and so, sing so, 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 so anyway, Dolly wins the, um, the talent contest as a seven year old, she gets in her truck or her father's truck to go home. And her dad kind of said something about compliment, you know, like Dolly, you did real well, and congratulations. And she said she looked at him as a seven-year-old and said, "I'm going to be a star, ain't I, Daddy?" <laughs> <laughs> and she said, and you can hear Dolly saying this because sure. she's such an American, an American treasure. Yep. Um, I told Rev the other day when he's monkeying around with these lights and doing whatever it is because I don't know what he's doing. He done, I don't know what Rev's done for ten years. I don't I mean, either, he, yeah. He's done a lot, <laughs> but but I don't have any idea. And I've been very intentional about not wanting to know about what he does because next thing I know, I'm responsible for some of that. And I don't <laughs> yeah. want to be responsible for any of that. I'll be running but, the board but I, or something. I told Rev, I said, we're going to be media moguls, ain't we, Rev? <laughs> we're going to dominate not just the radio airways. We're getting into that digital world now <laughs> where the signal doesn't stop at Gallivant's Ferry or Bishopville. It goes on and on oh. and on, to infinity and beyond, there you go. as Buzz Lightyear says. But no, we're excited about the, um, the podcast. There never would be a podcast if it weren't for a radio show and i think about one hour on one station wake up carolina turns into two hours on one station three hours on one station three hours in three stations four hours in three markets and we've always believed rev and i have committed to this that if we're standing still we're backing up and and we've always looked at the internet as a friend and partner not a foe or enemy or competitor because i'll tell you this and i think rev will agree he did reluctantly but i think he'll agree (laughs) If we're going to fight the internet and digital, we're going to lose. Oh, I mean, no you, you've got to embrace it and accept that it is a part of our new world. Um, I'll give you an example. I go to bed early. Uh, I turn the television on. I turn it on mute. I do some last-minute radio prep. I have no idea what station my television's on. But my computer, I can tell you the last 20 websites You know that, that I was on, uh, kind of perusing the world, figuring out what's going on. Uh, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of the other. And I think there's a place to integrate our radio presence 
into a uh, you know a podcast format. Owners have been uh, very respectful, very supportive of what we're trying to do here. So um, February 20th is our tentative date. It's kind of an interesting date. What is February 20th? President's it's Day. President's Day. So we may do our first podcast an hour long, roughly an hour. And that's, I guess, the good and bad thing about podcasting. There is no set time. Uh, you got to figure out a way to add. You got banner ads and product placement and all these other sorts of things. I got to wear socks, I guess, <laughs> every now and then and shirts with sleeves on it. I mean, I got to really gussy up to be on um, to be on podcasting. But none of this would have been possible if not for you and your support of our feeble attempt at Radio Brilliance that has allowed us to command some sort of an audience. And uh, and Mike was very encouraging uh, when he left here today. He said, man, I, I don't know how many people listen, but I, I just bump into a lot of people out there that enjoy some of these um some of these conversations that we allow to take place. You know, yesterday when I spoke at the Dry Dock restaurant, there were such gracious and kind people in Marion and Mullins that they were a lot came up and said, we listen, we enjoy um, some of the things that you take for granted. I told Rev this morning, one of the guy comes up and says, and I thought he was, I mean, he's, he's wearing a suit. He's a banker. I mean, I think he's about to tell me, man, you know this Fed better than anybody. I mean, the way you explain that Federal Reserve and quantitative easing and quantitative tightening, you never imagine you're from Pamplico. I thought you were a Harvard graduate or a, you know what I mean, a Stanford scholar. And um, so you were prepared for those well, accolades, I, I mean, right? Here's the banker yeah. with, with a suit on. Walks sense. up. I'm sure I yeah. am. I mean, we're, you know, two big deals meeting one another in the dark <laughs> of night uh, at the dry dock restaurant between Marion and Mullins. So um, so he walks up and I'm, I'm prepared for his complimentary remarks of, of um, you know, my understanding and dissertations on the Fed and, and quantitative easing. And you ready, Rev? Mm-hmm. The tightening cycle. Ah, yeah. Eight rates, rate, rate hike since March. Um, and he comes up and he says, hey, man, I listen a lot in the mornings. Not every morning, but when I'm in the neighborhood, I listen. And it was hilarious the other day when you were talking about Stang. <laughs> so, so, I mean, is that a compliment or not? I don't know. And I said, you know, you go like, okay, I was waiting on one thing. Here comes another thing. Right. And, it, and all of a sudden I remembered we played the police one morning. And who's the lead singer of the police? Sting. Sting. And I said, I think I said, I don't remember. I'm drinking Celsius. Um, I think <laughs> I said, Rev, when you're in Pamplico, and you say the police, it's the police. And when you say sting, it's Stang, the wrestler. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, there is no sting in the police. It is Stang, the wrestler, and the police instead of um instead of the police. But we'll do some of that on our podcast. Rev has asked me a million times. So so the intent is, and I don't really know. I mean, I honestly don't know. Something tells me that instead of talking about a hundred things for four hours. Let's talk about one or two things for an hour. Let's explore a little deeper some of these subjects and issues that we try to, you know, get after and better understand and explain it away. I mean, I go back G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip. You know, I think if we've got any beauty here over the airwaves, it's our ability to break down fairly complicated issues in a, in a simplified fashion. So the majority, and I'm not calling anybody stupid. See, I think that's where the confusion begins. So is he talking down to me? No, you don't have time to read all this nonsense. You don't have time to watch as much Fox News and MSNBC as I do. It's my job. I should understand it a little better. I should be a little more informed. So while you're living your lives, doing your thing, going to ball games, eating meals, having vacations, which is what you should do, I'm over here doing my job. My job is not your job. My job is different than your job. 
And um, and my job is while you're on your way to wherever you go from 6 until 10 in the morning to let us ride along with you or sit along with you or be a part of your morning. And, um, and we appreciate that. And because of your support to this feeble attempt at Radio Brilliance, we're able to kind of delve into another media format that is podcasting. I'm a level with you. I've done some research on that Google money. <laughs> and? And? <laughs> There's a lot of it. They got a bunch of it. Oh, you know. You ready here? You ready? Yeah. They, got a, they got a buttload of it. <laughs> I mean, Google's got a lot of money. And if you get on YouTube and download it and editing it, Rev, Rev will do all that. And you get to certain subscribers and views. Yeah. Next thing you know, you driving yourself a new pickup Rev. but but we have to remember we are starting from the bottom i from mean the bottom. from scratch well and, and we told the owners earlier this week look we we build an audience with a radio show can we build an audience with a podcast i have no idea i have no clue how many of you out there who listen to us in the morning have any interest in more of us or, or an extended you know i mean think about it i mean we, we've or, been or, or seeing you well i mean there, there's a bunch of us out there by us, I'm talking about you and I. We're on the air from 6 in the morning until 10, five days a week. That's 20 hours a week that people have to tolerate us to some degree. Mm-hmm. Is there an appetite for more? I don't know. I don't have any idea. But um, but but we're going to take what we do here. And I think the central ingredient to Wake Up Carolina has been authenticity. I mean, Rev has often said, the only difference in me and you, if it comes in my head, it comes out of my mouth. <laughs> Most of you think the same things i do you're just a little bit more nervous about saying it than i am so we're going to kind of celebrate that there'll be video um rev asked me 10 times who would you want the first guest to be elon musk no question about it um but he probably isn't coming to florence um but there there's a list i mean i'll give you an example nikki haley uh mark sanford lindsey graham uh dabo sweeney shane beamer um but there are a lot of different personalities that i think are very interesting it will be politically oriented but it won't be nonstop politics, rest assured. Um, the the I guess the um the greatest show I could ever imagine is if Beamer and Dabo were sitting beside one another in this studio. That would be cool. Uh, and then one's got a garnet shirt, the other's got an orange shirt, and they're I mean, from what I've gathered, I don't know anything about these, but I mean they, they appear to like one another. I've heard behind the scenes those two guys genuinely appreciate one another. And to get them head coach Clemson, head coach of South Carolina talking about you know not football necessarily but life liberty the pursuit of happiness and it's just i think it's interesting when we see a side of someone that we hardly ever see i mean when dabbo's at the podium talking about recruiting what do you think i mean well, he's gonna surprise us and say well we suck at recruiting you know or be i mean you know exactly what they're going to say i want to get people of interest saying things that you didn't expect them to say i think that is the most interesting part that's why i find governor sanford a kind of an interesting character. I mean, Mark will allow you to go down that road with him, you know, and, and next thing you know, he says something that he probably wishes he hadn't said, but you find very compelling well, here, and interesting. Here's a real world example of that and how it kind of worked to the advantage of this local radio show is when uh, Lindsey Graham was on with us, he called in and, and it was an interview uh, that you did a telephone interview and he said something that was relevant it was, and I think it was about an investigation, John Durham. I asked, I asked Lindsay, I said, Lindsay, is it the is it the committee's intent to officially investigate? Right. And he said, yes. And that's, that's our something intent. that it hadn't actually been addressed on the national level yet. And of course, there's a national interest in that. Well, then Lindsey Graham actually shared the interview on his Twitter. 
and it got picked up. And the next thing we know in the afternoon, we're getting contacted because Sean Hannity was talking about the interview and what Senator Graham said on his national radio show. So it, it goes to show, I mean, that's a little bit of uh, something going viral that started on the radio. But it's not my podcast, not Rez podcast, it's our podcast. And you've heard me say a million times, I'm a college dropout from a town with no stoplights. The, the name of the podcast was obvious to me. I mean, I thought a long time ago, if I were ever to do anything like this, it would be no stoplights. And that's the name of it. We'll have branding and marketing material. And, um, and once again, we'll probably be, as Dolly Parton said, I'm going to be a star, ain't I, Daddy? <laughs> <laughs> we'll see where this goes. <laughs> we'll uh, see. More, more not likely than, than so. Anyway, enjoy it. Uh, excuse me. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Trivia time, 843-661-0937. Our number, thanks to our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. Winner gets a six-pack of Pepsi product couple of takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirts in the world of acronyms. You know the government's famous for acronyms, right? Mm -hmm. What does EPA stand for? What does EPA stand for in matters relating to the federal government? 843-661-0937. The correct answer wins a six-pack of Pepsi product. I don't think it's Celsius. Uh, you folks aren't quite ready for Celsius yet. <laughs> you're, you're trying it out for all of us. Yeah, I'm, I'm giving a good, good, a good test run here. Let's go to the phone. Oh, you're on the air. You know the answer? Environmental Protection Agency. You're right. Who is this? Where are you calling from? Robin and Florence. Okay, my man. Hang on just a second. We'll get you back to Rev. May take a second because we're shorthanded here in the studio. We're saving ownership salary because they make <laughs> investments in our podcast studio. And we got to offset some of the expenditure. Yeah. Um, Environmental Protection Agency is a very... Uh, if you're a conservative America, it's pretty zealous administrative agency within the federal government, but um, in charge of a lot of issues relating to the climate. Um, you know, we've gone from the good old days of dumping oil in ditches till <laughs> you can't throw anything away. <laughs> the good old days. Uh, yeah, the good old days of dumping oil in ditches and, you know, burying dead horses and just, you know what I mean? Uh, anyway, it's, it was the wild, wild west without question. And uh, along came the Environmental Protection Agency. But but you and I would argue, Rev, the majority of our listeners would argue that it's another example of government overreach right, going and too zealous, far. zealot bureaucrats. Yeah, zealous. It was probably a good idea at the beginning. I mean, I think the, the mission is honorable, but. Well, it always is. But the next thing you know, in, is it up a government agency that was supposed to have 1,000 employees? It's got 20,000 employees. That there were certain rules and bylaws and regulations which we were to adhere to. And it's, you know, the um, the 20 page book became a 2,000 page book and the next thing you know is um is strangling the american economy unfairly against some of the global um competition and uh and that you know uh, trump did a lot i mean some of the legacy of trump is, is still alive and well i mean trump did some things at epa i mean he neutered some of the restrictive guidelines and red tape and and some of the other things that's why the president's such a powerful person they appoint the administrative agency heads of some of these um acronyms that have enormous influence over our lives and the Envi environmental protection agency is certainly is certainly one of those um i would say the number but i don't want anybody to call because we got about 30 seconds before we got to get out of here hey it's been a very eventful week thank you a lot for your participation um i tell rev your calls really and truly get the juices flowing we create some of these interactive conversations i like them to be disagreeable probably more than i i like the other way but uh Enjoy your weekend. We'll talk on Monday.